0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Thursday, the 1st of June. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone to give us a call in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86-26. So I hear in the weather forecast, boy, it's a tale of two different coasts. If you're on the west coast of the island, I, I think I heard in Cornerbrook this morning, 27 degrees the high today. Humidex means it's going to feel like over 30 degrees. Here in the city, when I came in from my vehicle to the office, it was around 5 degrees. I think we're heading to a high of in and around 10. So, boy, oh, boy, that's really something. But you can't be too surprised. Newfoundland is the 16th largest island in the world. Sometimes we lose sight of just how massive the island of, New, of Newfoundland is. And speaking of big islands, we had the first state visit from a president of Iceland for more than two decades arrived in the city yesterday. The man's name is Gudni Johannesson. Okay, Iceland is the 18th largest island in the world. Sparsely populated, only 360,000 people live in Iceland. Of course, they. Are, we're here talking about cod and green tech, and we'll get into that. But... Even though they are so sparsely populated, and people think that it's covered in glaciers, when in fact it's only 10% of the island is covered in glaciers, the rest of it, national parks, lava fields, and of course one of the main draws, the unbelievable glorious hot springs that you can find in Iceland. So while we're talking cod, and they do a great job with utilizing every bit of a cod in Iceland, it's funny how sometimes we refer to Iceland for best practices, and Norway when we talk oil, we'll get to oil obviously here in a second, but on top of cod and green tech, And sure, learning the best from people who are doing a good job, maybe collaboration that can make, say, for instance, the health uh, care delivery system better, whether it be technological advances or otherwise, learning a lesson from them about tourism might be something too. Now, if we get around a half a million tourists uh, arriving in this province for at least an overnight stay, you know, we've kind of rested on our laurels, and I think that's the high watermark, 500,000. In Iceland in 2019, 2.2 million visitors. Now, of course, if the hot springs are a major draw, no one's going to be able to convince me that 1.7 million tourists chose Iceland simply because of the hot springs. So we do have a lot to offer. We all know it to be true. So whether it be ecotourism, what people can find and discover in Labrador, UNESCO World Heritage Sites, so they're doing a great job. And inside that 2.2 million visitors, overnight visitors to Iceland, they spent $3-plus billion 1000000000 dollars that's a big injection of out-of-country money. So welcome to the president on a four-day whirlwind trip. So talking cod at the rooms last night, visit to the Marine Institute, but they do a pretty solid job in the world of tourism. Speaking of that, as we found out yesterday, Marine Atlantic, r- Marine Atlantic has decided to pause its increase of the fuel surcharge from 13 to 17%. They're going to wait till at least the 1st of December. People are right when they talk about whether or not we're getting our due When it comes to Marine Atlantic, given the terms of Confederation... The major issue for us is, of course, they are given a budget by the federal government. They have to operate therein. So when there's an issue with fuel and cost of fuel, we're going to see increase in fuel surcharge. No real defined reason or rationale as to why they're not going to increase it. It probably has a lot to do with the fact that the federal government saw quite clearly economic recovery on Prince Edward Island had to come with some sort of attention to the Confederation bridge. So the federal government uh, froze all the tolls for this tourism season so maybe just maybe that's what bled in to the hearts and minds of the folks at marine atlantic but that's good news for all of us not just the traveling public but everything that comes across the strait if there's an increase in price it's going to be passed along to me and you as we know stick with travel for a second so yesterday at the energy nl conference and a lot to discuss coming from that uh... collection of industry leaders so john Steele, of course our former boss here and we all know he's in the hotel business a big part of his presentation to the attendees of the sold out crowd was about access to getting to this province so some people just shake their head or they shrug their shoulders say well there's nothing we could do if there's not a business case for the airlines then why would they set up more direct routes in and out of uh, newfoundland and labrador well we lost the WestJet uh, direct flight to ireland basically because halifax stanfield which has now also lost it they just put some more money on the table made it more attractive for our WestJet. Sales year over year were increasing on that direct uh, flight to Dublin. So Mr. Steele is talking about working hard and aggressively so to establish direct international routes to two notable airports, Heathrow in England and, of course, Newark in New Jersey, from which you can get a direct flight to almost anywhere in the world. So there are two major hubs. People think that this is a flight of fancy and an unnecessary exercise. But whether it be for business and or me and you and or tourists, it probably comes with a bigger punch than we give it credit for, if that's what people are interested in talking about. And, of course, traveling within our own province. Boof, stick with travel, this time on the roads. So the folks who are living in or visiting for work or whatever the case may be, Mount Pearl of Paradise, the speed cameras are now in action. Okay. <laughs> so I'm being told repeatedly this is simply a cash grab. And, of course, this year there will be no fines. They're simply going to send you a letter, which people will pop probably scoff at when you get a letter saying, hey, you were speeding. So if the data says that it can slow people down 30 to 50%, we know that's going to come with an increase in public safety on the province's roads. Well, certainly Mount Pearl Paradise, this go around. So they're there. I wonder, do people also consider it a cash grab if you get pulled over by the cops and they write you a ticket? But the cameras are there. It's a 90-day pilot project. I'm not so sure exactly why we're not going to issue fines. I guess we're told by the minister that this year is about... The, to inform the design and the implementation of a wider program that can be available to municipalities interested in improving road safety with this pilot. What do you think? Let's talk about that. I'm into it. So, the camera's going to take a picture of your rear license plate, record the date, the time, the location of the offense, the direction and speed the vehicle's traveling, and the posted speed limit. The tolerance is going to be 11 kilometers over the posted speed limit, so said the Minister, Minister Studley, when we had her on last week. Okay. What a difference a day makes. At the Energell Energy NL conference, it was all a buzz, Whether it be looking at exploration in summer of ExxonMobil and BP going out, BP in particular are looking at an enormous potential discovery out in the Flemish Pass. And it went from that and eight companies with their five-minute elevator pitch about their wind to hydrogen projects, some of which are very interesting. And now, yesterday we found out, via email apparently, that Equinor has decided they're going to pause Beta Nord for at least three years. No matter who's trying to put on a brave face, whether it be the premier or Charlene Johnson at Energy NL, it's not simply disappointing or a bump in the road for the industry. This is a major blow. It really absolutely is a major blow. Okay, let's look at it. Equinor, we don't, we haven't heard a whole lot of detail as to why the pause. Some people aren't thinking that it may indeed be a public negotiation here, whether it be pressures being brought to bear by the province regarding top sides of work to be done here in the province, jobs created onshore. The Premier and Minister Parsons say they didn't feel that any of the discussions had soured, so they were caught off guard with this one. Then they go on to talk about market volatility. Okay, so if the price of Brent is somewhere around 72 bucks this morning, Equinor has long told us that their break-even business model was at $35 a barrel on a $16 billion project. Yes, the cost and the inputs have increased, no question. Obviously, just like virtually everything we touch has increased. But market volatility? I mean, is there anything more volatile than the price of a barrel of oil? and all the external pressures that can be brought to bear, whether it be with the cartel that is OPEC and controlling production numbers, all in an effort to maximize their revenue and profitability. And Equinor is doing very, very well. In the first quarter of this year, $12 billion in revenue, and after taxes, is $3.5 billion U.S. dollars. They've really backfilled some of the Russia input to Germany and other countries, so they are cash flush. Maybe we'll find out more as one of their executives uh, from Equinor Canada Speaks to the Crowded Energy NL, but this is absolutely a blow. There's no doubt about it. Okay, so it does bring to bear some pretty important questions. Like the province this year talked about some $1 billion in royalties coming from the oil business. We know that that's going to be backpedaled somewhat because, obviously, Terranova and the FPSO sit out in Bull Arm for more work and improvements based on the, obviously, poor work that was done in Spain over the course of 13 months, which was originally supposed to be seven months. So when people like Rob Strong, been in the business for some 42 years, ask the question, well, what now? Whether it be opposition politicians asking the very same question, what now? And I wonder whether or not Equinor is simply putting this on the table. When generally speaking at these types of conferences, companies that have some good news to share will wait to share it when all the industry leaders are in the same room. Seldom do we hear a whole lot of bad news coming from these type of conferences, but this is a huge one. Now, there will be people in the country and people in the province that think, well, we have to curb fossil fuel production, and consequently this is something that they welcome, including the folks right across the street at the climate conference. But there's major questions to be asked here. It would have been Canada's first deep water oil project. People say, well, it's simply a delay, not a cancellation. But, you know, Ecuador has long said only the best projects will proceed. In the last two months, they've walked away from three different projects. So maybe, just maybe, their focus has changed. It's not that long ago that uh, Equinor pulled all their human resources out of Calgary, brought them to Newfoundland and Labrador, to downtown St. John's. They've been here well in excess of a decade and have long hoped to be an operator. And here they are sitting on a significant find. You know, maybe as many as two, three billion barrels of oil. And now, all of a sudden, it sounds like it's not going to happen. Maybe there's complications with the United Nations Law of the Sea regarding Article 82 and the fact that this is outside our 200 nautical mile limit and consequently there'll be hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties that will be paid by somebody. The province says it should be the federal government because the Fed signed on to it, not us. The Fed say that's petty and pushed back somewhat. Maybe some of the conversation included Equinor being part of paying some of those royalties which would be distributed to developing nations. But wherever you sit on this one, For the oil industry, massive blow. Is it a bump in the road? If so, it's the matterhorn of bumps in the road. So if you want to take it on, we can talk about it. And look, you know, all the attention on day one about wind to hydrogen, look, fair enough. There can indeed be some good jobs created. Not so much in the way of royalties flowing to the province. Just think about it. If we thought this year if Terranova had to be back out producing, that would have been about a billion dollars coming. Let's do some comp- comparisons with jobs created and monies that could flow with these wind to hydrogen projects. Curiously, one of the projects is actually AboWind, a German company. They're hoping to uh, power the entire come by chance now Bray Renewable Fuels simply with their wind to hydrogen. So that's kind of different, as is Pattern Energy out in the Port of Argentia, versus some of the others, whether it be Exploits Valley or World Energy GH2, Mr. Risley and his group on the Port of Port Peninsula. Let's talk monies that could come from wind hydrogen, just to remind folks what we're talking about. They have indeed painted a picture on something that they say is a 1,000-megawatt project. Okay. They say that over the course of 30 years, a 1,000-megawatt project could bring the province somewhere in the neighborhood of $3.5 billion. Okay. That also includes some pretty lofty goals with long-term permanent jobs after the construction phase. And here's what comes in based on the province's release of their fiscal framework. Okay. Crown land reserve fee, annual charge of 3.5% of market value reserve lands. As well, a crown land lease fee at an annual charge of 7% of market value. Then we get into the taxes and the royalties. A wind electricity tax will be paid once the turbines are in service, an annual charge of $4,000 per megawatt. Water use. This is where people have some issues. Water use fee payments or royalties after the permit has been issued an annual charge of, I'll say, only $500 per 1,000 cubic meters of water licensed and used. And of course, those royalties only to be paid after cost recovery by the proponent, which comes with a lot of gray areas. So you talk about the transition and the future and the hopes and the jobs and the royalties and the taxes. Yes, maybe these wind hydrogen projects can be an Excellent next step forward, economically speaking, and environmentally speaking. But anyway, you want to take on the Equinor decision, which I think is a big one, let's talk about it. Okay, and as I mentioned, the Climate Conference across the street, many of their attendees will think, even quietly, or maybe quite boisterously, this is a good thing. Interestingly, on day one at the annual Canadian Meteorological and Oceanographic Society Congress, they were examining forecasting leading up to things like post-tropical storm Fiona. This is kind of fascinating stuff really. We take the weather forecast and some people they hang their hat on it every single day. It's something that they look into the radio to find out exactly what the forecast might be. It's changed over the years. Not only the technology to come up with a forecast, but now they say that of course science has shifted the focus. Here's a quote. We're starting to reach the near limits of predictability. So now we're looking pardon me, pardon me, we're working much more closely with Social scientists, psychologists, who can take our knowledge and the forecast wording so that people take the forecast seriously. I don't know how seriously people took the Fiona forecast. We know that many or most did. They used some pretty forceful language, calling it large and potent, dangerous, strongly encouraged to take the storm seriously. They don't usually talk about it like that, but they did for Fiona. But isn't that amazing? You know, gone from the Doppler weather radar to whatever technology they avail of today to now bring in social scientists. To talking about crafting messaging or wording around forecasts so that it really drives in or gets burrowed into the brains of the listener, wherever the desperate weather might be coming. So that's pretty fascinating stuff. We mentioned Brea Renewable Fuels. $86 million dollar injection of cash yesterday. Looks like they're going to be able to deliver their biodiesel and low emission fuels by sometime at the end of the year, which is interesting too. All right, let's talk about the Canadian economy, some of the numbers we heard, saw yesterday. So it kind of beat the analysts. The Canadian economy grew on an annualized basis from 3.2%. Even some of the most optimistic analysts were talking about maybe 2.5%. But here's the here's the rub. Look, we don't even know what contributes to that. I guess consumer spending. And, you know, people talked about the potential for recession. We never know if we're in a recession until it actually happens. And I think there's fair consensus across the board, and that's how that works. But inside the growth numbers, and unemployment head, solid, head steady at some 5%, which are very encouraging numbers, but does it really feel, to the average Joe and Jane, especially those of us who are so-called somewhere in the middle class, does it feel like the economy is chugging forward? Does it feel like any of the cost of living or inflationary pressures have been lessened? Not to me. And, you know, I don't think government really has a whole lot of levers to pull in short-term numbers, whether it be with inflation and or economic growth. But apparently that's a good thing. But you compare or contrast that to the stories that we know that household debt at the highest level ever exceeds 100% of GDP, which is just remarkable when you stand back and think about it. But apparently the economy is growing, and obviously that's a very good thing, whether it's based on capitalization or productivity or whatever the contributing factors might be. But anyway, how are we doing on the telephone, Dave? Here's a couple I wanted to get to. I did want to talk about safe supply of drugs because that's a big conversation, especially on the West Coast, but I'll save that for some time during the program. Trouble for the Prime Minister. So there was always going to be some political corners that would personally attack and question the integrity or the honesty of anyone who was going to be appointed the special rapporteur to look into foreign interference in the 19 and 21 election. And David Johnson has come under fire certainly from the Conservative Party. The NDP continued to talk about the need for a public inquiry. Now, there's been a non-binding motion passed by a vote of 174 to 50 that is asking for David Johnson to step aside. That's basically what it says. David Johnson should step aside based on what he brought back in his preliminary report, which did not recommend a public inquiry. Mr. Johnson immediately said, no, not doing it. But if the exercise is going to be to best serve Parliament, to best serve Canadians... And now a majority of the members of Parliament want Mr. Johnson to step aside. That does put the Prime Minister in a pretty tight spot. Now the NDP, of course, they're not going to back away for their supply confidence agreement with the Liberal Trudeau, the Trudeau Liberal government. But what is the straw that breaks that particular coalition's back? If it's not this, then what? Is it simply they got what they wanted with dental care, for instance? But Mr. Johnson, a majority, and I would think maybe there's possibly a majority of Canadians, if we're talking about ski-buddy stuff and the Trudeau Foundation, eh, whatever. But if majority of Canadians, and now majority of parliamentarians, think the next person to take on this role should be someone other than David Johnston, and the need for parties to agree upon who that should be. Now, that would be like herding cats for all parliamentarians and all parties to agree on who should replace Johnston if and when that happens. But that non-binding motion has made it. Doesn't mean that the Prime Minister has to do anything, but now you know. All right. Let's see. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM up online. Follow us there. Email address is openline at When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal. That requires your call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning online. Number one. Good morning, Adrian. You're on the air.
2: Good morning, Patty. How are
1: you? I'm doing very well this morning. Thanks. How about you?
2: Not too bad. Good. Um I, I wanted to talk, I wanted to touch on on Basically, the tourism industry and the lack of vehicles for rent out there. And the ones that are for rent, the exorbitant amounts that they are charging during this time of year. And uh, so my brother, I was talking to him. He wanted to come down from Ontario to visit. And um, the cheapest car that he could find uh, from a well-known rental place, we'll say. It was uh, thirty-eight hundred dollars for ten days. Oh boy.
1: Yep. Oh man. It's long been yeah. a problem.
2: I, I mean, is that is that impacting our, our tourism industry? You think?
1: Yes, I would suggest. I would think so. Yeah. Would ha- think so. Just a quick question: Has he tried to find uh, someone who's put their private vehicle on the Toro app? T U R O. Well,
2: I, I- I mentioned that to him. He hadn't heard of it before because I guess in, in Ontario, you know, I guess he doesn't have that problem in Ontario if he wanted to rent. Uh, but um, he, he, I, I mentioned it to him. I, I said in the last couple of years, you know, private people have been putting out their vehicles for rent. Um, he hemmed and hawed about it. You know, he wasn't sure if that was uh, insurance-wise, this sort of thing, right? He wanted to ask those sort of questions questions i don't have the answers to of course uh, the the rental
1: fee comes with insurance coverage uh it seemed to go pretty well last year It was the first season that the toro came to town i know a couple of people who put their vehicle on it they enjoyed a bit of extra revenue coming in the door they i'll call them customers or clients were pleased with the experience pleased with the cost and certainly the opportunity to simply get a rental when it's so complicated and look the rental car industry here has been a problem for a long time When the pandemic struck and rental car companies sold off their fleet because no one was traveling, consequently no one's renting uh, vehicles, for them Mm -hmm. to repopulate their fleet, it has come with a massive uptick in the prices that they charge. So, And then add to the fact how isolated we are here on this island versus on the mainland. We used to do this thing where if we wanted to go to Edmonton and watch a hockey game, we would go to a rental car company and what they call a deadhead. They'd give us a rental car that was based in Edmonton that someone dropped off in Jasper. We would drive it to Edmonton on their behalf. They'd give us 100 bucks, and that was also our trip in to go see the game or go do whatever we were doing. We don't have that luxury to shift rental cars around you know. this province, so it just adds you know. to the complications.
2: It does, and, and, but I mean, the exorbitant amount, I mean, $3,800 for 10 days, uh, I don't know how they can justify that. I, I realize that insurance has gone up, uh, you know, the cost of... of uh, buying a new vehicle has gone up, repairs has gone up. I, I understand all those things. But I, I think it's really going to end up putting a, a huge dent in the, the tourism industry. And a lot of people don't want to come here. We don't have that luxury of, of having other means of transportation to get from one place to the other on the island, you know. And uh, and where everybody wants to go into the little nooks and crannies, we'll say, of the island, we just don't have that luxury. So there's, you know, the... They have to either take the the $3,800 for 10 days, or they just don't come to the island at all. You know, they, they make their vacation plans somewhere else.
1: It's a massive amount of money for 10 days in a rental car. I don't know where the solution lies, though. Sometimes, well, we can easily talk about the problems, It's a bit more difficult to talk about potential solutions or to ease that type of financial burden on a, on a tourist, on a visitor. But what can anybody do about it, I guess, would be the question, because in, even inside the world of competition, the budget, or pardon me, the rental car companies, they all charge a very, very similar price because they know that they got you where they want you. So people exactly. talk about government intervention, which, you know, for me, I really don't want the government getting in there and telling me what I can and cannot do as a private business necessarily. You know, there were going yes. to be regulators, what have you. So I don't know where the solution lies. Any ideas? I,
2: I don't know where the solution uh, lies either. I really don't. I mean... Um, You know, the rental car companies, they have to understand that at the end of the day, you know, charging $3,800 for one person for 10 days, and then you may not see another person for another 10 days because of those. So, I mean, you know, it's like six of one or half a dozen of the other. You know, what do you do? Yeah. Right? Uh, um, But I don't know. I mean, I'm also wondering if the the government had any statistics on that yet. Um, Maybe a bit too early yet. I don't know but i mean is there any statistics saying that tourism is down because of maybe you know the the growing prices of coming here i realize it's a remote area but you know it it's, it's never never been that you know astronomical i don't think
1: yeah pre pandemic yeah. numbers 3, were, yeah th- that's massive the pre pandemic the tourism numbers were growing albeit incrementally i don't even know how good a job we do on talking with tourists about why they came what their experience was like uh, whether or not there was a deterrent whether it be with uh, finding accommodations in some of the smaller parts of the province or the cost of rental cars or the cost of flights or, like I'm not even sure what we know you know I guess that would be incumbent on Particularly the operators, hospitality, in Newfoundland and Labrador, maybe a standardized questionnaire that we hope tourists would fill out. Very short, so we have, you know, more data that makes for better policy decisions. So I don't even know if they do that or to what extent they do it or how the province handles it. But that's a curious one for me to follow up on. Also another suggestion mm-hmm. in addition to Toro is this fellow wrote and said, Maybe, just maybe, rent a vehicle from U Haul. He had friends come home, rented you know small what? trucks. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I've often thought about that myself, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, go to U-Haul and rent a pickup truck, right? Absolutely. You know, I'm sure that they they don't have small cars or anything like that, I don't think, but I think the smallest they have would be a pickup truck. So, you know, why not? Right, it's that an would excellent be absolutely suggestion. Absolutely an option. I think it would be as well.
1: Yeah, I'd pursue that. This is a, is a note coming from a tourism operator. Tourism da- is down. He, uh, he says you're right, and it is absolutely down over the last few years, obvious for obvious reasons. And that's why I talk about tourism and Iceland and stuff off the top because it is what they call a growth industry. And when we were doing well, we thought, well, that's it. We've reached our peak. When in fact, that's desperate uh, way to think about things when there's opportunities to grow further. So between Turo oh and U-Haul. Hopefully your uh, was yes, it your brother? My brother, I'm sorry?
2: My brother yes, yeah. yes. He, and I mean, he, he's been away from from Newfoundland for fifty plus years. You know, he's born in Newfoundland, but I mean, he likes to come home once a year, and uh, or at least two once a year, if not twice a year. But I mean, he's deterred this this summer from coming home. He said, you know, he was he was shocked. He was like I had almost laid him back on his back. He said, thirty eight hundred dollars for ten days. I he said, I just I don't know if I can justify that.
1: Yeah, I know I couldn't. Uh, I appreciate the time, Adrian. Let me know if either U-Haul or Toro gave him a better less expensive option that he's going to take advantage of.
2: I'm going, I'm definitely going to mention the the U-Haul to him because uh, I did have that in the back of my head, but I didn't mention it to him at the time, but uh, yeah, I'm going to see if he would consider that for sure. And yep.
1: hopefully he does make his way home. That would be great.
2: I hope so too. That would be great. Thanks so much for taking my call. You
1: have a great weekend. The very same to you. Thanks, Adrian. Okay. okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, I suppose when we talk about deterrents, they would be varied, no doubt about it. And one of them is going to be ease, access, cost. Whether it be rentals on the ground, opportunity to even find a rental car here during the peak of tourism season, or whether or not when you're looking around, say, well, I'd like to do something in the ecotourism world. Or I'd like to see an iceberg, because who knows why people travel. Or I'd like to experience the East Coast culinary scene. And then they start looking around for the airlines and opportunities to travel here via air and then think, wait, no, I'm coming from Saskatoon. i got to stop in Toronto and Halifax, and it's going to cost me $1,800? Really? And then you look around and say, well, I can go to, uh, for example, let's say Iceland. I can go from Saskatoon to Toronto right to Reykjavik for $1,000, and what? So there's a lot of things like that. And, you know, I get it when people shrug their shoulders and say, well, private business is going to do what private business wants to do. But how we aggressively pursue it, if you listen to John Steele, of course he's got skin in the game, but doing a better job, making it easier and hopefully less costly to get here with more direct access, which would absolutely be satisfied if somehow with whatever it is, investment or landing fee adjustments or whatever it is to get flights directly from Heathrow and or Newark, that would be what they call a game changer. Let's take a break. When we come back, we talked about this a little bit last week. It's not the biggest story on the face of the earth. But it's frustrating because it's emotional, and in some way, it's kind of absurd, if not obscene. Lindsay wants to talk about the ongoing spat on the Quebec-Labrador
0: border. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your
1: VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Before we get to Lindsay, let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the chair of St. John's Pride. That's Eddie Sancour. Good morning, Eddie. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Happy Pride. Happy Pride to you. Uh, you. Quick question, I and mean, this is not in an effort to get off on the wrong foot, but these are the questions you hear and we see perpetuated in the media, social in particular. Yeah, is people talk about why is there a need for it used to be a Pride Day? Why was there a need to fly the rainbow flag at municipal buildings like St. John City Hall, and now why is there a need for a full month representing Pride? What do you say when you hear those questions? Because I know you do.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and it's and it's a fair question, and I think it's really important because. You know, we can look at how many advancements the community's made, and how how much closer we've gotten to achieving equality and being at being at the table when decisions are being made, and having a say in what's going on. But we can't lose sight of the fact that in 2023, our community has ever increasing threats, and they're and and they strong threats. They're coming in from they're coming into everybody across the community for one reason or another, and that's why pride is important. Because at the end of the day, we need to come together as a community, be there as a community and support each other, and stand up in spite of that adversity and rather than and I try not to focus on and I try and encourage people not to give, not to give too much oxygen to the people who are trying to politicize queer rights and LGBTQ+ plus rights. I would much rather us take a focus to make sure that our community feels safe and that our community knows that we can come together and that the public too can hear what's going on. And that they can get involved and and be a part of, be a part of Pride and be a part of that idea of how do we how do we advance our society ahead? How do we move our community ahead, and keep those improvements coming so that people feel safe walking down the street, people feel safe going through the par- going to the park with their with their partner, or if if a parent wants to bring their kid to a drag story time event, they don't they and the per- the people participating in it don't have a fear of of doing that in the day to day and that and for as long as those things still exist, pride is really important. And it's really important that younger people that are coming up, especially in a a province that's, that's, you know, it's it's isolated, we have a smaller population here, that they can look and see people in their community and go, okay, there's somewhere where I can belong, and that they can start to make those inroads and that they could learn a bit more about the community and kind of have those different exposures.
1: I wonder how you and friends of yours or a member of Pride and the larger community, do you have to turn off some of the especially social media in particular where you know, there's all this bleating on about cancel, culture uh, and whatnot. And then if a company, whether it be Bud Light, put a rainbow in a can that you can't even buy in a store, or Target has a display in their store, or North Face, or any other company that displays anything, and or a baseball team or a hockey team with their Pride nights, and all the backlash and immediate over-the-top reaction comes, how do you consume that news or do you avoid it at all costs?
3: I can't avoid it at all costs, and, and the community can't avoid it at all costs. That's, that's the reality that we face. I mean, I try and remind people as much as i can that like there are there are algorithm accounts and everything else that are running on social media that are specifically targeted to try and find find communities like ours movements like ours or events that are going on like ours and try and specifically target them and to get under to get under our skin and I think there was one comment that I saw come up on the Pride the the Pride Board Facebook page the other night. And when I looked into the individual, they're from somewhere in Michigan. Is that person a real person? I don't know. But at the end of the day, I'm not giving credence to that, and I'm not taking the base. But when it comes to when it when it when it comes to dealing with those kinds of things, and I think that it's interesting when a brand comes in, like Bud Light, in in good and Bud Light. If you go back historically, Bud Light was one of the first beer companies to buy advertisements in lgbtq media like we're talking black and white prints decades ago but it's i'm i'm having I'm, I'm finding it interesting watching how brands react when they face the adversity so a lot of brands are yeah we'll jump on and they see a market potential there they want to help out in their community and somebody up at head office goes hey you know we could make some money off of this and i'm watching different brands and how they're reacting because some of them are getting a taste of what it's like growing up as an LGBTQ+ plus person and living as an LGBTQ+ plus person and I'm really hopeful that brands stand up to that adversity and instead of shying away from it and running away from it when they're facing what the community faces every single day that they kind of remember why we're doing these things and why it was important for them and why the community would see it really positive when a brand would support pride and not just to shy don't don't just shy away and run away because you're starting to feel the heat that that people in our community feel every day.
1: I'm not okay. sure if this question is question pardon me, if this is oh, gonna sure. make a whole lot of sense but I'm gonna try to say it yep. anyway. So we know that publicly the pride community is still relatively small when we talk about percentage of the population. Yep. Do you think that it's folks that legitimately have, whether it be a societal, a religious, or a moral opposition to it? Or do you think because of the size of the community, and they historically have been very vulnerable, that you're easy pickings?
3: I think I, I think it's two. I think there's easy pickings, and I think that what people are doing is they're politicizing they're politicizing something where they think that they can get populism behind it and that they can get people riled up. And do I, th- do I think that some of those people really care one way or another? So, a lot of them do. But what, I'm, what I tend to see is people trying to make a name for themselves by, by, by calling out pride and even to take messaging and things that we see from different, from bigger cities where there's a lot of adversity, a lot more adversity, and trying to bring that here and i mean luckily what i've seen over the last week and when we've been talking about these things is we've got a really strong community now that being said we've got a community that's got a lot of hurt there's a lot of hurt in the pride community in this province and in this city and we have people from all corners of the globe all religions all different ethnicities that are that that are facing this and it's really about us focusing on coming together and standing up in spite of that, and whether and, and making sure that at events, that our people feel safe. Instead of focusing on giving legitimacy to these people that are just purely trying to politicize us living, I'm much more concerned over, are the people that are going to, story to a drag story time event, do they feel safe? Are people showing up for that? If there's a coffee house or a film screening or something else, are we there to support them, and do those people feel feel safe in that space? And that's kind of that's where I'm trying to put my focus.
1: You mentioned drag performances, whatnot, because it's in my lifetime that there was things like the bathhouse raids. I mean, you could yeah. go to prison simply because of your sexuality. Yeah, and, and or, or
3: lose your job or lose your house. Sure,
1: and your Andrew, your sexuality. Now the conversation has changed. And it's not just about opposition to one's sexuality, it's in reference to drag, and it's in reference to trans. And what the messaging has been on that front is it's no longer about questioning lifestyle and or sexuality or orientation, it's about children. And they very carefully and, and in a calculated fashion have made it about children because mm-hmm. who in their right mind can say they don't care about kids, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it be talks and use of pronouns and uh, sex ed inside schools and or the whole concept that uh, anybody at a drag show is a groomer, man, that one to me comes across as not only very carefully calculated but willfully dangerous. So mm-hmm. when you hear this, what do you say in reaction to Because if we look at the stats for people who have been molested as children, sexually abused as children, it's really quite clear. It's someone they know or someone in a position of authority that has long-term exposure and opportunity. Mm -hmm. So what do you say when you hear that word? Because I think that one is not only politically charged, but societally charged to the nth degree.
3: Yeah, and it's really hard. Like You can imagine if you're a drag performer on the other side of that, and you're just going out to to showcase your art and and make people laugh and, and entertain people, in one way or in one way or another you can imagine what it's like being that performer in the community and hearing all of this hate and vitriol and hearing these accusations and everything else and ultimately you know i think that if if people if if people want to talk about the children and and you want to you want to be i think every parent has the right to raise their raise their child we encourage them to bring their, to bring the family and we'll be having family events at pride and and sober events at pride to bring people out but this whole notion that all, there's all of this evil and there's, and there's this big agenda that's, that's behind drag events and, and this accusation that there's grooming and all that, I don't give that legitimacy. And it's, it's really hard, especially for a drag performer that's hearing this, because it's a personal attack to not react. But when we react and when we draw attention to these, accusa- these false accusations, that pe- there's, it's not grounded in reality, that gives those people legitimacy. So rather that we start to shift the focus on our people, and if we're going to have a drag event and we're going to open that up to the community, if we're going to have a family event at Pride and open that up to the community and people want to show up, great. And let's make sure that those people that do feel safe in that, they feel supported in that environment. And for those who don't, stay home. Someday you'll get it, and someday you'll come around. And if you're not there yet, don't bring hate. Into something that we're trying to do to bring the community together.
1: How about in schools? Because, you know, I think there's a fair, if whether well, people wanted to be uh, open minded and honest and have a real discussion as opposed to be polarized and unflinching or unwavering when we talk about sexuality in school that again has changed Mm -hmm. and when parents say that at some point there's been a celebration not to understand who people are and understand differences but now the concept is is parents think that it's being promoted children are being encouraged to be gay uh, children are being encouraged to transition children are being led down a very dangerous sexual path before they're ready at whatever age might be appropriate When you hear that, because some parents who I think have been... Look, I encounter people outside of this uh, office all the time. And that's some conversations that people have asked me to talk about. I'm not entirely sure what to say. It should be open and honest. The parents should be in the loop. It can't be done in secrecy. Like one school apparently has had these support meetings at lunchtime and at recess, and the, the children were told not to tell their parents, which I think just derails the conversation. So when we talk about the encouragement to be gay, the encouragement mm-hmm. to be trans, to be welcomed into one of the most uh least tolerated groups on the face of the earth, what do you say to parents and educators about that thought, that concept? Because that's also seeping into this conversation more than it ever has in my in my understanding or certainly in my professional life.
3: Yeah, and, and that's and that's really pertinent right now and it's something that we're seeing like we're seeing the government of New Brunswick is Trying to review Policy 713, which kind of deals exactly with these kinds of things. New Brunswick ha- has a standing policy right now that if a if a pa- if a student within a school expresses to an educator in a safe space that they want to be referred to by a different name, they want to use a different pronoun. As it stands right now in New Brunswick, it's the the teachers can't, can't, teachers can't divulge that to the parents unless the student the, the student gives them permission to do that. And what's and the really easy argument that people throw out is, well, parents should know what's going on, and parents, parents should be involved in everything else. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't have involvement in how they raise their kids. But I'll tell you, you the story. When this Policy 17 started coming up, I'm from, I'm from New Brunswick. I grew up, I'm proud, proud Miramichi boy, and I called home, and I was talking to my mother. My mother is not a political activist. She votes. She, she, you know, she follows what's going on in the province. But I called my mother, and I said, Mom, this is going on in New Brunswick. And I said, if you could do me one favor, could you call your MLA and have a discussion with them about this, and talk to them about what's going on? And She asked me to explain it, and I gave her a bunch of details. And, and really quickly, my mother stopped and went, "Well, you're going to have you're going to have kids who are in families where that's not acceptable, and that kid's going to be that kid's not going to be safe. What? How? How do we make sure that that kid is safe? So there's a balance to be struck between." Protecting somebody, and even to, and somebody who's a youth, protecting their, protect protecting them, essentially, because that kid could go home to an abusive relationship. They could go home to a community that will not accept them if if that's who the if that's who the if that's who they are. And we have to give kids that safe space. And as they kind of as they navigate their journey, and put supports in place. When we're talking about transition surgery and those kinds of things, there are countless amounts of professionals, way more qualified than I ever will be, to look at these situations and offer advice and and counsel youth that might be questioning things or might be confused about things. And that's why it's important that we've got mental health supports in schools. So when those things come up, youth can navigate that. But this discussion over I understand people's notion to say, well, the parents parents absolutely have to be involved and they absolutely need to know. The reality, though, Patty, is that we have cases across the continent where LGBTQ plus youth didn't have any support in their community. And unfortunately, a lot of those youth aren't with us anymore. So we've got to temper that... This mora- there's this moralistic notion of, well, a family believes this, and a family believes that, and that's what's kind of got to be the hard rule there. And then also balance the reality that not everybody comes from the same household. Not every- like, I was, lo- I was really lucky and fortunate that I came from a family that when I came out in my 20s, they were really supportive of that. I come from a small town of 80 people. I can tell you that when an older cousin of mine came out, the reaction even in the family wasn't that welcoming. It was this big shock. It was, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And, and the younger ones of us in the family kind of stopped and went, why is this an issue? Okay, that's great. Let's, let's keep going with this. Because, and my family's evolved since then because we've had these discussions, and, and my parents now have a proud gay son. But we can't, we, we can't operate in this reality when we've got increasing violence and we've got increasing threats against LGBTQ plus people and saying, to hell with making sure that these youth are protected and that these youth, that these youth have supports and they have a supportive structure. That, that can't be it.
1: Eddie, I know you didn't call for this. I think you just want to talk about some events that are on the horizon. Uh, I appreciate your time. I'll give you a chance to do exactly what you called for now that we're... No, and Patty,
3: this has been a great chat. And, and you know what? It's really great to see like VOCM and, 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 product, and radio shows like this want to have these conversations because that's the only way that we're going to get ahead.
1: It's, it's a societal issue. And this is not about me or anybody taking sides. But my thoughts on this is if I don't engage in these conversations, regardless of what I think then we see what could be the very dark side and the very troubling and dangerous side of it just becomes status quo and yep. we just become numb to it well, as opposed to we talk about it and this is not an effort to change anyone's mind this is an exchange of ideas and someone who's willing or wanting to push back can join the show as well mm-hmm. and hopefully that, that can be reasoned uh... eddie i'll give you a chance for some of the things that you want to put on the uh, calendar for folks that might be interested in
3: yeah sure so I, the the First reason why I called in this morning was to announce the dates for St. John's Pride Festival for this year. So the festival is going to run from the 9th of July right on through. The parade will be on the 23rd. It's it's longer this year. It's a bigger festival this year. And, and the reason for that is because the Pride Board, I mean, we only had an AGM last Sunday to elect the, the, elect the new board that was coming in. It's been a whirlwind four days, and we're trying to reach out and meet with as many groups as we can and, and make sure that people kind of all have a say. But the great thing about it is the reason why the festival is, is slated to be as long as it is is because once we started digging, the community did what the community will always do. And when there was uncertainty about if the Pride Board was going to come together quickly enough, people in the community started planning the traditional events that we would see at Pride. So the the, bond, the bonfires underway. There's different, there's different events that are already starting. And we kind of went out and, and started asking people, tell us when your events are. And Pride's going to see if we can help, if where we can support you, if you need volunteers, if you need help with logistics, if we're able to secure funding for you. But we're really turning to the community and going, tell us what you're doing, and we'll, let's see where we can help, and let's make this a really great, very festival. And then after the festival, we'll have a debrief. We'll have a public meeting where people can come together and say, I like this, I like that, I'd like to see this next year. Can we do this differently this year? And we're going to have that discussion. The other thing that we're doing is... The Pride Board is going to be out in the community this weekend. So Saturday, we're going to be at the St. John's Farmer's Market at the community table from 10 until 2. And that's a, that's a sober space. It's a fully accessible space for people that want to come out. And then Sunday, we're going to be at Kaleidoscope Drag Bar and Lounge downtown. We're having this, big, this brunch to celebrate the start of Pride. And we'll be there for 12 to 2 if people want to come down, get excited for Pride, talk about what's coming up on Pride, talk about their ideas, sign up as a volunteer, and really get this going. And then today, if people, today the provincial government's having the flag raising to mark uh, the start of the pride, start of the official pride season, and, if, and we're really thankful to them for them to do that. And if people are out and around, we'd love to see it that flag raising. And then St. John's, the St. John's Pride will have their own for the city later in July to start the festival.
1: Appreciate the time this morning, Eddie. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Cheers. Bye bye. St. Sinclair, chair of St. John's Pride. That'll get some obvious uh, different reaction in my email, and, and so be it. It's VOCM, uh, it's at com, And if you care to join the program and you want to pick up where you left off, or you want to even if you think that it's important to oppose certain points made, then you can do that as well, okay? Let's take a break. When we come back, Lindsay, appreciate the patience. We're going to talk about our Labrador border with Quebec, and we were told last week that Quincy and Royal Greenland weren't buying crab from the under-40 fleet. Brenda's there to talk about that. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we certainly do appreciate it. We spoke with Lindsay and Brenda off air to make sure they could wait through the news because Lord knows I don't want to give short shrift my old buddy Lindsay to talk about that Quebec-Labrador boundary. Is uh, Look, Again, it's for some people it's just like the conversation that is still ongoing regarding the to Newfoundland, and there was a sing-along, quasi-protest, and very politely done outside of the Arts Culture Centre, where mon convocations are now taking place. So people think, well, my God, do we not have bigger bigger things to worry about? The answer is, yes, we do have bigger things to worry about. But that doesn't mean that it's not important to many people in the province. And, of course, that could be on the radar if you're so inclined to talk about it from either angle this morning. The same thing, I think, could be said for the whole issue regarding the Quebec-Labrador boundary. It's not the biggest deal, but it's something. And when things become emotional, they will provoke calls and/or reactions on social media, emails, or whatever the case may be. And this n- renewed conversation all stems from the fact that at a policy convention for the Bloc Québécois a couple of weeks ago, they had it right back on the table that they continue to dispute what has been settled and solved for decades about the so-called ownership of Labrador. You know, it had an interesting beginning with how it was first proposed. About concerns, and it all stems from a timber contract granted to a Newfoundland company by a Newfoundland government. And of course, along the Churchill River, Hank Quebec said, "Sure, that's Quebec. How can a Newfoundland government, of course, is well before Confederation, how can this government make any type of decision regarding our sovereign land?" <laughs> when then it goes through all the machinations of the Privy Council in 27, it was further enshrined. Uh, a Confederation in 49. It was part of the Constitution in 1982. So we can get into that with Lindsay, but it is quite frustrating. And there's still some school books in the province of Quebec that very clearly show Labrador as part of their province. It's just such a bizarre thing that I don't know how why it continues to be part of the conversation in Quebec. It's just bizarre. It's not only bizarre, it's absurd. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, all of those issues are on the table, plus whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away.
0: (laughs) Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM.
1: Welcome back. Well, apparently there's a moose on the loose. We'll find out where from uh, Joan on 6 morning. Joan, you're on the air.
2: Oh, hi. Uh, Yeah, it's just in the CBS by Manuel's Bridge as you're going up to the highway. And it's by Weir's Construction.
1: So keep your eyes peeled. I saw a video of one walking down one of the streets in Paradise the other day. So it's that time of year for the moose. They're going to be absolutely everywhere, not just on the highway. So watch it. Uh, they're around where's Construction. There's a moose right there. I appreciate this, uh, Joan.
4: Okay. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, the possibility to encounter a moose is absolutely everywhere at this time of year. Let's go to line number three. Lindsay, you're on the air. Yes.
5: Uh, good morning, uh, Patty. Morning to you. Yeah, it's a nice day, beautiful day.
1: Yeah, well, not too bad here in town. A little bit grey and a little bit chilly for the 1st of June, but that's it. Bye.
5: Yeah, but we haven't got a cloud in the sky out here. Now, we're going to have some clouds tomorrow, I think. Okay. Okay, so anyway, what I want to talk about is uh, Quebec... Deciding to lift the boundary between Labr- Newfoundland and Labrador and Quebec. Like, can they really do that without that having to go through Parliament and stuff like that uh, and the Senate and that kind of thing? They can't they can they do. Have it. The authority to do whatever they want to do.
1: Yeah, uh, they're just entertaining an absolutely meaningless exercise. It's just to rile up political support for the Black Quebecois. It really has nothing to do with anything in reality. So they've never let this one go. It's really quite silly isn't it because it, it actually it is
5: foolish because yeah uh,
1: it is
0: foolish
5: would they leave left the boundary between Ontario and Quebec or Quebec and New Brunswick no well, they wouldn't so the same rules apply for Newfoundland and Labrador and Quebec
1: they do the same rules apply but there's never been a boundary dispute between those provinces and no, this I one no
5: it's just you know you go <laughs> from Ontario Quebec or Quebec and New Brunswick mm-hmm. you know you just eat in one and out of the other right you know that sort of thing but then he, I like, like it makes me kind of mad Look, just to satisfy them that they're going to think, well, if they do that today, what are they going to do tomorrow or next year or the next year after? They want a little bit of this and a little bit of that and something else in there. And they want satisfied that they to get a Labrador to be all theirs.
1: No, but this is settled. There's nothing that they can gain from this other than political support and emotional rah-rah political convention. Nothing's going to change here. This has been enshrined in law. It's over. It started in 1902. It's gone through different uh, exercises, including in 1922 when Quebec approached the Judicial Committee Privy Council of London and asked them to adjudicate this issue. Then the Privy Council uh, of Canada in 1927 made the determination where the Boundary is and it's 3,500 uh, kilometers long, the largest interprovincial boundary in the country, That was settled in the terms of Confederation in 1949, further settled in 1982 in the Constitution. So they're just banging on about something for the sake of. It's silly, it makes them way look way worse than it could ever make us look. So they can wear this clown suit all they like but nothing's going to change regardless of how, how loud they yell at a policy convention.
5: Yeah, well, anyhow, like, it doesn't sit too good with me, I can guarantee you. Okay. And uh, now and then, but you said just now something about the Churchill River being in Quebec or something. No, no. No, I was going to say, the Churchill River, the source of the Churchill River, I got a map book here, and it starts in the Smallwood Reservoir, and goes runs on down through Labrador and out into Lake Melbourne.
1: Well, it starts before that, but that's not what I said about the Churchill River, is that it all started, this whole controversy started in 1902, because Newfoundland, of course, pre-Confederation, gave it a timber license on the Churchill River, to which Quebec said, that's our river on our land, and of course, we went through all of those different exercises to say, no, it's not. So, uh, that was my comment, is that it all started about a timber license on the Churchill.
5: Okay, but anyhow, like, like you know, I, I don't think I'm the only person that this could make mad, you know, because you wouldn't do it, like I said, they didn't do it to Ontario and Quebec or Quebec and New Brunswick, and i showed sure there's lots of timberland around Quebec and New Brunswick.
1: But as I said, there's never been a boundary dispute in the last century of any of those borders. The only so,
5: so why are they doing it now? Why are they making a boundary dispute now?
1: They're not. They're not actually uh, making it. F- that way to me. Well, they're just doing it for their own amusement. They know in their heart of hearts that this has long been evaluated, adjudicated, and settled. So they just do it because it's political foolishness. No more, no less.
5: Okay, because they just can't move in and take over the Labrador. They cannot. They own some of Churchill Falls or something.
1: No, they can't do anything they like.
5: Okay, then that's for my concern, because, you know, what's ours is ours, and what's theirs is theirs.
1: Absolutely. You're right.
5: Yeah. And like I said, they wouldn't be able to do it without first having to go through the government of Canada and the government of Newfoundland and Labrador and the government of Quebec. Yeah. You would have to take them three steps, as well as go through the uh, governor general, and probably you would have to go back to... 1902 when uh,
1: when it was all settled over in England. Yeah, and I I mean, not even the province of Quebec is formally doing any of these things. Of course, it's hard to hang it on Premier Legault because he's not even in that party. He's part of the Coalition Davenire as opposed to the Bloc Québécois, who they've got a very distinct uh, base that has certain thoughts, some of which have actually resulted in referendums about separation and what have you. But I don't think we need to be too worried about any of this kind of stuff.
5: Uh, no, but if they did have a referendum, let supposed suppose that they, they would win. They could probably say, oh, yes, Labrador is
1: out. No, they couldn't. No? No.
5: Well, anyway, it's a concern that's on my mind anyway. I don't know about anybody else, but something like that was important enough to talk about over on open line and the people who ever listened to this open line and know what it, what's going on.
1: Absolutely. I'm glad you called. Yeah. Thanks, Lindsay. Okay, then. Take good care. Bye-bye. Okay, thank
5: you. Right,
1: bye. Yeah, they can think all they want. They can ball about it all they like, but nothing's going to change. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Brenda. You're on the air.
6: Yes, good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, This is the last thing I really wanted to do, but I really don't see a choice in the matter. Somebody needs to speak up and answer a few questions for us. Uh, we've been uh, fishing like well a lifetime my husband been fishing 47 years and and i was 12 years into the fish plant and now i've been fishing since 89 and we sold to the same company ever since we started fishing now they're after changing names since we started but for the most part we've been selling to them every year now we once we got told that we could go uh, fishing, we went to get bait, and we were refused bait. We couldn't, the, the under 40 feet boats weren't allowed to go, so that was fine. We kept calling and finding out things, where, like where, where we stood and what was going on, and we can't get any answers. So three days ago, we were told that we could get bait, So we went, picked up our bait, and then we asked when we could go. They didn't know. So we can't get any answers. We don't know why we can't go. We don't know why we can't haul our pots. And the larger boats, like they're going and coming all the time, and and God grant it to them, they deserve it as well as we do, but we just can't find any answers. We don't know why the under 40 feet are not allowed to sell our Product.
1: Yeah, well, I, I guess the, uh, two different ways to put the same thing. Quincy, Royal Greenland are not going to buy crab at this moment off the 140 fleet. I think that is scheduled to change sometime this week, if I'm not mistaken. But we talked to Pamela Patton, the president of CNL, last week about this exact issue. So I suppose it all comes with them prioritizing buying from the bigger fleet, including the offshore crowd, because this is all, I think part and parcel with things like trip limits right so until they satisfy what i guess they think are their prioritized customer then they won't buy from the under 40 fleet which is a problem i'm not defending them because i think this is nonsense because when we were told by the association that they've got bait and ice available they did not say that we only have bait and ice available for the plus 40 foot uh, 40 footers and the offshore they said the bait and the ice is available and no distinction about size of vessel where they are or the plant
6: that's correct And and like what one of those boats bring in, it's going to take us ten years to bring in that much. Our quota right now is eleven thousand seven hundred pounds. And I talked to one of the the higher ups in the in the business last week, and he told me that uh, when we go, he's expecting that a trip limit would be from three thousand to five thousand. Now we go 20 miles to get our quota, and probably without a doubt, we can bring most of our quota the one time, which like is 11,000, like I just said. And they're telling us that we can only bring in half of that, which means that the cost of everything we got to go back again to to haul the second time to bring in our quota. But it's not fair. It's definitely not fair. If, it, if nothing else, is one thing, it's not fair.
1: It doesn't sound fair. What has the union told you?
6: Uh, the union hasn't told me anything really i i have talked to a couple of people from the union and like they're not moving on it they're just saying that they're they're calling and they're not getting any answers the same as us because
1: mm-hmm. let's remember when the union signed that agreement with the processors about 220 pound guaranteed for the rest of the season a bit of a sliding scale if the market improves which it doesn't look look, look like it will they did say at that time part of the negotiations continue regarding trip limits which this is exactly what this is basically, right? Yeah. So they, had, they signed that, and they agreed to you know, release the hounds and allow people to go back out on the water. Not allow them, but tell them that the solidarity, the tie-up is over. You can go get it for two twenty. But one of the biggest concerns has always been not just price, but the trip limit issue, because you're right. The input cost for you to have to steam out more than you have to, more than you need to, to get your entire quota, is just additional costs, consequently uh, reduced profit. Yes. And a nuisance.
6: Exactly. I mean, like, my husband now, he's 63, and I'm 62, and we're, like, we're not getting no younger. We can't do the work that we could do, and and we're expected to go out there 20 miles. Now, granted, they're, they're even saying, like, when we can go and come. So if we go out a day that the weather is bad, I mean, we're risking our lives. I mean, you risk your life every day when you're fishing, but... To have to go on this day that they say we can go, like, and if we don't go that day, then you're kept another 7 to 10 days before you can go. Because like it's, 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 it's just not, it's not adding up, it's not making any sense
1: the for me and i don't have any skin in the game i am not a harvester i don't have a crab license but the price was always going to be the price now sure. whether we change the way we set the price and a more clear understanding of what percentage of market price goes to the harvester and of the processor fair enough but the market itself which is a pretty generic thing the market couldn't care less what i think what you think what greg pretty thinks what uh, jeff lauder thinks none of that matters so the no. price was always going to be whatever but the issue that i thought would have been top of the list because the price was never going to change would be try to figure out how they're going to get at it with a glut of product and the trip limit issue which has been a concern forever and a day but it wasn't even achieved when the tie-up went away so i think that that really does beg the question what did the union get like where was the victory here you know what was all that six weeks all about there is no victory for us i understand
6: no definitely not i mean if anything it's worse because we can't even go fishing. We own our own enterprise. We, we built it around us like over the last 40 years. And we cannot run our business
1: yeah point taken maybe I I guess time Greg for us to circle back or Dave pardon me to circle back with Mr. Pretty and Mr. Loader to talk about these exact issues so we'll see if we can get both representatives on the show as soon as possible
6: I thank you very much for taking my call today and uh, look forward to hearing some answers soon
1: I appreciate your time this morning Brenda as well thank you
6: thank you very much
1: you're welcome Take care. bye-bye yeah so it gets quote-unquote resolved and then issues that have been part of the problem, season over season over season, are still there. It's just remarkable to me. Uh, let's take a break. Lots of time for you when we come back. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Paul, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you going, buddy? Doing okay. How, how about you?
7: Not bad, boy. This is Pride Month, I heard. Tis. Yeah. Like, uh, I, well, I, I have no problem with gay lesbians whatsoever. You know what I mean? But the only thing I'm so concerned about is that men dressing up as women, going into women's bathrooms, when a, when a mother and child goes in there and you see a man, or even in the shower, you know what I mean, for uh, like coming out of the arena and going to a woman's shower and you see a man dressed as a woman and going in there. I, I, I feel like they're being forced, uh, the trans, trans community is, being, is forcing stuff down our throats that shouldn't be. Like, I think they should have either a trans bathroom or something. But I, I feel like the women are being vulnerable now.
1: Okay, a couple of things. Let me say to begin with, I find this facet of the conversation probably the most difficult. And for many, I think the most confusing and for others the most maddening. So I don't know the answer. Let me just start by saying that. There are plenty of gender-neutral or private bathrooms that are out there. Whether or not that's the answer, I don't know. But let me put a couple of things to you. So, do you think it's simply men dressing up as women to get into women's bathrooms, or do they actually, in their mind, identify as a woman? Because I think they're two different things. One is below your waist, and one is between your ears.
7: Yes, but what I'm saying is that uh, you know, I mean, like men could take care of themselves in, in a man's bathroom. But when a phone grown ass man goes in a woman's bathroom with a wig on and eye, eye stuff on and cheek stuff on instead of lipstick on, you know I me mean, going to a, a woman's going to a, a a woman's shower after getting out of after from swimming and he walks in and here's a here's this guy showering with the women. And something is done. Like he's coming to the point that it's like the trans trans community is starting to get violent forcing us this stuff down our throats. Look, all I'm worried about right now is that, listen, don't get me wrong, gay Lesbians, I have friends, gay friends, I have lesbian friends, and they're spot on. But what I'm concerned about is the mothers and children going into their washroom, order a shower, and, get, and have to face a, 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 a transsexual in their shower when everything is exposed.
1: Do you think that? the reasoned person anywhere in the pride community does that and purposefully willfully gets into a shower with little girls as a full-grown manager i I don't know either but uh, also has it actually proven to be that that's what happens and secondly has it proven to be and present an unsafe environment where there's actually been crimes committed i i just really don't know if that's the case you know
7: during, like I was I watched the the Canadian news too, and there's 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 a guy after getting charged for sexual assaulting by dressing up as a woman going into going into a woman's bathroom and, and sexually molested, trying to sexual assault a girl.
1: But that's an individual pervert, right? Right. I mean, what what happens sometimes is when that atrocity crime takes place and it should be people should be arrested and punished for doing that. Of course they should, but is that actually representative of? the larger community? And I okay, would say I, I, no, because there's all kinds of crimes. Like, for instance, if a white straight man, so-called white straight man, commits yes. a crime against a child or anybody else in a sexual fashion, does, that doesn't mean that everybody who looks the same ha- feels the same and would act the same. I think the same could be said for that particular man that you point to. Is that the exception or the rule? For me, it sounds like the exception. That person is a criminal pervert as opposed to someone who actually has a sexual identity that is trans. That's how I think about those things. But I do tell you right now, I don't quite understand the issue. I don't know where the very best solution lies, but I think we've seen this used for political purposes as much as societal protection so I get your point and I don't know the answer and I struggle with this one I really admit I do I try to understand things that are outside of my purview I don't really get it all but I try to talk to people who probably have a different perspective than I do but men in women's washrooms has that presented an issue when we're talking about the general trans person who Identifies yes. as a woman, so it's not about what's under their belt; it's what's between their ears. And yes. if that person you talked about, that person's a criminal, and that yes. person needs to be dealt with as a criminal. I'm just, I'm so concerned about like the way things are going
7: with the trans community. I am so concerned about the innocent mother and child going into a woman's bathroom, in their bathroom, in a shower, and and and. and find a man like that. Like, it really bothers me. Like, I, I would say this is Pride Month, right? I think we should get it all out there. Like, have pride and respect after, after women and children. Men can take care of themselves, you know? A man, you know, a woman cannot... Uh, take care of themselves when it comes to a full-grown man dressed up as a woman, going into their bathroom, and more or less forcing themselves to use that bathroom or forcing themselves to use that shower because they think they're a woman.
1: I get that, but I my question remains the same. is Is that what's actually happening? Is that what people who are identifying as trans are doing, purposefully, willfully, trying to cause harm, physical or mental, to anybody in a bathroom or a shower? Or are those people simply... Individual, criminally minded perverts who are willing and wanting to hurt people. I think that those are two different people, two I know, different yeah, categories. It's so
7: it's so hard, and so confusing. Is it's like a lot of it is. I, I'm a father with with a son and a daughter, and, and I'm telling you, man, I like I I so I'm scared of, of the mothers and, and 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 their kids going in, in the women's bathrooms now because of the way things are going, you know, right? They should have they should have a, a like a trans a transsexual bathroom. Or like you said or, or or the showers you know you can't just go in you can't you can't just be uh, have a ma- man get undressed in front of a uh, of a woman and her child and get a shower after after uh, after swimming you yeah. know what I mean even though if they're, met, they're mentally thinks they're a woman they can't, this should not be happening
1: but are they doing it and I've never been in that situation so I can't tell you I and again I struggle with this one. I don't know the answers to this one, and I'm not going to come on because someone thinks differently than someone who's a member of the community. Because okay, it's a fine. fair question.
7: Fine, sir. But I just want to uh, kind of just put this uh, into an end. Now, all I want is that for like uh, for people to have pride and have respect for the women and the children's bathroom. Men can take care of themselves. Trust me, men can take care of themselves. But I'm so concerned about the women and children when he goes out in a public place and have to go into a washroom or a shower and, and, and see a, a mentally guy taking it as a girl, and he's showering up, and he don't think nothing about it,
1: you know? Yeah, again, I, I'll just wonder whether or not it happens like that, and I don't know. So, And this is not any sort of raging argument or debate. I'm hearing you out, and I don't know if that's actually what happens more often than not. Protecting yeah. children, yes. Protecting women, of course. If there's someone who's willing to do something outside the boundaries of the law, then they should be dealt with as a criminal, regardless of whether or not they are identifying as a man or a woman, whether or not they are their sexual orientation. A crime is a crime is a crime. And Paul, mm-hmm. I do appreciate your time. Would you like to say anything quickly before I have to take another? No,
7: call? it's okay. Just, just, I just, just get get that out there. And, and like, I like for that other people have have, uh, have their opinions too because it's really confusing for me and it's frustrating for me too, especially for the women and the children. There's more than I'm afraid for them. I'm concerned about them. I'm in mean, bad Patty. You'll
1: have a good day. You too. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye, Paul. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Margaret's got a heads up for us, and we'll hear what that is right after this. <laughs>
0: You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Margaret, you're on the air.
8: Good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Not bad, thanks. How about you?
8: Oh, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I got a nice promotion uh, yesterday, and he called me back again today. But it's about uh, Bill got a huge promotion on, for your satellite and internet and all this jazz so i said to him um i asked how much he didn't didn't say how much it was so can i sign you up i said no i'm sorry i said how do i know if you are not a scammer so he said no i'm not anyways i called did call bill just before i call you now they do not have no uh, promotions on and he gave me the phone number. It's one nine zero two eight zero 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 four nine seven. That is a local phone number, according to Bell. Yep. So I just thought I'd call and I'd let uh, the listeners know all about this because it sounds so good.
1: Look, the the best thing that we can all do. Is Some of these offers, they sound really great because if you're paying one company or another for your, your home phone, your internet, your cell phones, we're just paying so much that when someone comes across with an offer, we're all salivating. Like, okay, please, can you save me some money? Mm-hmm. The only way right. to make sure that you're not getting taken to the cleaners is simply to call the company yourself. Because if they called you with a deal and you call them back, they'll have the same deal if it's actually real. Mm-hmm. So even if exactly. a number, and that's what gets, you know, they've advanced their clever tools of scam uh, behavior quite, quite distinctly in the last number of years. Like it used to be, a number came up on your phone that you knew full well there was some nuisance on the other end because it didn't look like any phone number you'd ever seen from anyone who's ever called you. But now, it can make it look like they're calling from Elizabeth Avenue. You know, a exactly. 7, a seven zero nine seven two six number. Well, it's got to be real. When it, mm-hmm. No, it doesn't have to be real.
8: I've even had numbers come from scammers, like my own phone number. Yeah. I said, how is this? You know? But anyhow, um, I'm I'm a step ahead of them. No one will get information from me. So this is why I want to give you a call and just warn people about this uh, promotion. So they have heads up.
1: And the companies would be wise that when they hear these types of things and they're made aware that that's making its rounds, the company really should do their very best to protect their clients To say that here's what we are currently doing, here's what we are not doing. So if you get that call, that's not us. They should be Mm -hmm. absolutely proactively trying to protect me because I'm their customer. And the, I think far too often they probably don't do it enough. I do hear them talk about it sometimes, especially yes. organizations like CRA. When they hear one, they'll get out there in the news and say, "That's not us, right? We don't do that." But mm-hmm. I think your mantra here is, uh, "They're not going to get the best of me." That's how we should all think. And if we had that uh, as our starting thought, then we would probably do uh, do more to protect ourselves. You're not going to get me, exactly, right?
8: Mm-hmm. Now, one thing they are doing is using 800 numbers. Sure. Yeah. They're just making up. Any old number at all, so Bill did tell me this is a local phone number that they're calling from.
1: Yeah, but of course we have the ability to simply look at our bill and see if it matches the number on the bill.
8: Exactly. Right. Yeah.
1: You know, let's build in all the protections and hopefully we wear them out.
8: Oh well, yes, I've had all kinds of calls here, but uh, they, they don't get me anyways. I'm I'm one of those uh, that's want to hear it ahead of them.
1: Good on you. That's the way it should be.
8: hmm So I hope everyone else uh, do the same thing. Don't take any calls from anyone. If They say they are Bill or Eastlink or whatever, okay, do like I did. I will call you back tomorrow if it's a good uh, promotion, but in the meantime, I'm going to call Bill or Eastlink.
1: Like you would. And so mm-hmm. let's do the same thing, all of us, all together. At the same time, we'll just call you back. Not taking it at face value. They're not going to be mad at you. If they got your business, they don't want to lose your business. So you're simply saying, I've got a number right here in my bill for customer service. I'm sure they have the same deal on their computer screen. Thanks for this. I'll call you back in five minutes. Bye. Yeah,
8: that's like, you know, your credit cards and uh, Amazon and all this. I've had all callings of calls, but no, nobody's got me yet. And they won't get me.
1: Like you would. I'm glad you gave us the heads up here this morning, Margaret
8: okay uh, good thank you okay so you have a great day
1: very same to you take care okay thank you you're Bye welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. all right uh, let's go to line number one janet you're on the air
4: hi uh thanks for taking my call mm-hmm.
1: can you hear me can you hear me okay i can hear you okay it's a little bit of reverberation but let's go
4: okay i uh, just wanted to uh respond to paul i believe talk about the trans um, bathrooms and I appreciate what you're saying Patty that you're you're not fully uh, up on all the issues here but one of the the basic issues are rights and so when you talk about if there's one-off a one-off perpetrator who will be um, prosecuted if they break the law. That's too late. So right now, girls and women have the right to a safe space. That is being jeopardized. It's too late. You you make the, the distinction between what's between their ears and what's between their legs. There's no way of knowing that prior to. Whoever comes in the bathroom, there's no scan there to tell what their intentions are. So I wanna make the connection that I think people need to start to look at the big picture and connect some dots because what we're talking about is an erosion of our rights. The same thing if you wanna connect the dots between the woman and her husband who's been fishing for 40 years and now government is telling them when they can go out, when they can't.
1: Just one second. Before we get into the trip limits, which is not the government, it's actually a private company, with the issue regarding the bathrooms, let me just say this and I'll get your reaction. If that person is wanting or willing to expose himself to a woman or a child and they have that criminal mindset, they're going to do it. They're going to do it wherever they get a chance to do it. So do we think that how things have changed, that we've all of a sudden made things more dangerous? Because that dangerous person has long been walking amongst us. That dangerous person well, is they, going to take they, their opportunity wherever they get it.
4: That's not true. That's This is a, a sanctioned, easy access. It's happening in uh, women's prisons, It's happening, these things don't get covered on the evening news. And that's what I'm talking about with connecting the dots, whether it's people's right to make a living, to be independent of government versus being dependent on government, being regulated. The pandemic that we just went through had the largest transfer of wealth from the middle class to multinational, international corporations. That's always been the priority since the federal government has been managing our fishery. It's not the individual Newfoundlander, it's not the inshore fishery, and that woman speaks to that as well. And you can see multiple, multiple examples throughout society. It's happening more frequently. The rate of change and trans is a good example that people need to do some research and see who's funding these initiatives. It's a very, very, very small segment of the population. It's not the same as lesbians and gays who have fought very well for their rights and are well integrated into society. No issues. So when the pride. Uh, Eddie gets on and says that there's a tremendous rate of violence against trans. Notice that he doesn't give a reference for that. That's scaremongering.
1: But now, Janet, in just, fairness, you've just done the exact same thing. What? Talking about how safety has been imperiled or has been uh, re- safety has been reduced because of what you see as new parts of society and new behaviors and new opportunities or different conversations a a, a
4: gay man is still a man a gay woman a lesbian is still a woman this notion that uh is eroding the idea of women so in 20 years time when women can't have babies and they're doing it in pods and there's no such thing as a woman we'll look back to this time and say oh we didn't realize what was happening Things happen slowly. These are long-term plans. They are written. If people want to do the research and connect the dots, that all of these issues, all these changes, they have the result of taking away our rights, like small businesses, and what happened with the pandemic. Yeah, I, b-
1: before we, there's, I don't necessarily understand the overlap with the fishery and the uh, societal issues regarding LGBTQ. But, It's large
4: multinational corporations, so with the trans, it is big biotech, right? It's biotech that's pushing the uh, bioengineering of humans, and these are small changes that if we're not aware of, we don't see the big picture, and we don't see the funding sources for this trans agenda, which... Most uh, regular bisexual, gay, lesbian people are not part of that. This has become now a, a, a whole month thing. It was June, now it's July. It's sexualizing children. The curriculum in schools has changed where they're sexualizing children more and more. It's an agenda, and people have to wise enough because well, okay. before we know it, it will be too late. So when the next pandemic comes and we're shut down, is everybody going to say, oh, we need to do this for our safety? When we realize now that the vaccine didn't yeah, affect transmission, they didn't even test you're for
1: you're it. You're correlating a lot of different things here inside yeah, of some that's big conversations. Exactly right. Yeah, but that's exactly I, I, right. Because just hold on a second, though, Janet. Are we all of a sudden saying that transsexuals is something new? As opposed to has been happening since the actual beginning of time,
4: it's a minute percentage of the population. Exactly,
1: exactly. So, so your so thought why that all these exactly, but why, Janet, why? I didn't do that. Let's get her back because I did not touch anything for Janet to go away. Because what I was going to ask is if we're talking about all of a sudden there will be no one who rep- uh, identifies as a woman. The fact of the matter is, even with all of the different battles and uh, issues that have been part of sexual orientation, sexual identity, It's still, as her absolute point, it's a minuscule percentage of the population. You know, it gets a lot of attention because it has long been easy pickings. And talk about funding agencies. You know, if that's part of the conversation, then if you look at some of the groups that are part of the anti-movement against LGBTQ, it also paints a very (laughs) clear picture. Look, none of this So Aaron says, look, this discussion on trans people seems more harmful than helpful. Look, People call on whatever they call about, right? I'm trying to walk a tightrope here, and so give me a break. If we're talking about a very small percentage of the population, which is true, is demonstrably true, is are we making mountains out of molehills regarding any of the societal change, any of the potential or associated risks, because that's what it really feels like to me. Like, again, if there is going to be someone who is willing to age inappropriate, talk and or physical interaction with the child, that person has long been a problem and remains a criminal. If we're talking about someone who is taking advantage of a situation, at a pool, at a rink, at a business, at a shopping mall, regardless of access to one bathroom or another, that person has long been walking amongst us, remains a criminal, should be treated as a criminal. So I do think in many segments of society that we have taken issues that are, regarding the minuscule proportion of the population, I think the exact same thing can be said for the minuscule portion of the community that is doing anything criminal. If you want to talk about age-appropriate sexual education conversations, I get that. I'm a father, I lived it, right? So we can talk about that. If we're going to talk about, th- I mean, Janet was moving very quickly from one to the next regarding uh, transition of wealth during the pandemic and the fishery and what the government's action is. And uh, look, I get there's just so many things, I, I, like I feel the same way many times here in the morning, is there so many things bouncing around my head that I have a similar problem to Janet and try to, you know, get through one point, get through one portion of the conversation, then if there's a tangential link or the next steps, then we can try to take them. And I did not hang up on Janet. I absolutely didn't touch anything. I don't know what happened. And if she'd like to rejoin us to finish her thoughts, she can do it. This is not about being harmful or helpful. These are big conversations that are actually happening in front of us. To not entertain them just means that one side will never hear from the other side. And I don't know where that's ever got us. On every, any, or, every or any single issue anywhere in the world, in society, period. It just has never changed anything when we don't talk about stuff. I will try to keep the potential harm down to the bare minimum that I possibly can. Having important conversations is, whether you like it or not, is something that we have to do, and I feel like I'm compelled to do it. Doesn't look, make no mistake, it's not my favorite thing, because i got to take it on all day, every day. I'm not complaining because I signed up for this gig. You want to take a break? When we come back, Kyle is there. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Kyle, you're on the air.
9: Hey, Betty. This is uh, my name's Kyle. I'm a long time listener, first time caller. Welcome to the show. Great. I was just calling in regards to um, the fellow two behind me, the guy calling in with the um, LGBTQ and the trans and using bathrooms, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I was calling in to. I I, so before I call, I fact checked real quick. I mean, this guy's calling in saying that he's worried about the. Kids and women, and, you know, one would assume if you're talking about kids and women in a bathroom alone, you're you're worried about sexual assault and, and whatnot. And I think he is way up. I mean, I, I, so I just opened up the OCM, I searched sexual assault, and, you know, the people of that community are not the ones that we have to worry about. I mean, you look this up here, there's five or six about the RCMP, there's five or six about the RNC, you know, they're all 60, 70, 52-year-old men. You know, I think Newfoundland is very uneducated on, you know, what... If that is his concern, about who to be worried about? It's not that community, it's not those people.
1: Okay, and That'd I mean, then you factor in, you know, stories that we've heard. Unfortunately, it's, it's an ongoing conversation here about compensation for victims at Mount Cashel. Then you read a story from yeah, the, the New the York the Times. The next, yeah. There were 1,700 uh, people inside the clergy and or members of the Christian Brothers. That, pardon me, uh, they assaulted 1,700 kids over the course of a c- few decades. So, look, there are lots of different corners of society that have posed a historical potential risk inside the world of children being abused. These are not my numbers. These are numbers compiled by Justice Departments, Stats Canada, and the federal government. When we talk about children who are victims of sexual abuse, a full 90% know they're abusers, not some random, not some person who just walked into the shower, not some person exactly, that, that they bumped exactly into on the street.
9: I mean, especially here in Newfoundland. I mean, I I, I searched VOCM for a piece of um, sexual assault charges. I don't see a single one, you know. It's, I think the whole debate about the, you know, LGBTQ, trans, you know, all those communities is just fueled by classic old homophobia. I mean, that's the root of this issue. I mean, these people probably don't know a single person from that community. They probably, you know, they're just basing it off fear and politics. I mean, I'm not going to get into politics at all because I'm not political in any way, shape or form. But, you know, I just think that the, you know, we need to shift the focus on like that they're they're not an issue here you know nobody from that community is going to harm that person that just called in i mean you know they, it's the and if they do
1: that. and if they do they were going to do it regardless yeah, of the societal it's not, it's conversation like said, it's,
9: it's an individual person it's not a community at large right i mean if we like you said in the in his column I mean, if we had to base every white male on charges you know we every single one of them would be a criminal and that's not that's not the way it is it's it's an individual thing and I think we need to remove the, the Q and trans from that fear-mongering that happens with, you know, a lot of it comes from, I think, the, like, the politics in and the, and the, those groups, and just over here, because I guess that's what these people are reading, social media and stuff.
1: Well, Kyle, I'm sure that is part of it. Let me add this to the conversation. I think another component is the just not knowing, not being familiar exactly. with, not understanding one issue or another, because when that happens, very quickly, People can have their thoughts populated with things that they simply read, whether or not they're verified, documented, have any merit, because that's the way the world works here these days. Everything's working, uh, moving at breakneck speed. So if something is confusing, as opposed to trying to figure it out, then we are very quickly convinced that, oh, that makes sense to me, so that, that's not my full-time opinion. And yeah, so, everybody hops on a
9: bandwagon, they see somewhere, they see, you know... That happens quickly this is bad, and then they're like, yep, this is bad. I'm hopping on this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to live and die by this thing I know nothing about.
1: A hundred percent. And, you know, again, this has been not a new conversation, but it's been given heightened attention because there is a political benefit to different sides here to take it on and be the champions of or the persecutors of. And so as a result the conversation doesn't necessarily hinge itself in what's actually happening. It, ha- it sometimes attaches itself to the very worst-case scenario. Look, when you're trying to talk about public safety and stuff, worst-case scenario has to be something evaluated, but there's also probabilities that need to be part of that discussion, and in this case, in large part, it hasn't. You know, you I don't know if you're a social media person, and unfortunately I do use it for the show, but yeah. now the entire community is nothing but groomers. Now,
9: yes, exactly. That's all social media is, I mean, it's, it's hard to find anything that's factual on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, without, you know, doing some crazy fact checking. I mean, almost everything you see is just, you know, just the hearsay. It's someone's opinion. Someone's,
1: yeah. Look, there. Someone just sent me a review uh, uh, via social media about evaluations done by law enforcement and universities about what segments of society are more likely to be victims of crime. And then via email, I got another two or three that have been sent along. The headlines are all very, very similar. Along the lines that transgender people are four times more likely than cisgender people to be victims of violent crime. So that sort of backs up what uh, uh, one of the callers had said earlier. So for me, and I'll use an interesting phrase uh, on this one here, this is not only like walking a very tight uh, tight rope for me this morning, this is much akin to dancing backwards in high heels. We're going to have to navigate it the best we can. Try to keep it as level-headed as the best we can, but that becomes very difficult in these emotionally charged conversations where opinions have been formed. Opinions are now becoming unwavering, and I yes. mean, I don't know what else to say or how else to entertain these uh, types of conversations. But
9: you yeah, know I, I, I do want I do want to comment and say you do, you do you do a great job as like a I I consider myself an ally. I'm just a, you know a young straight dude, but I have friends that are in the community, and I just want to say you do, you do do a great job handling these these ta- these um, topics.
1: Well, we'll do what we can, and like, I haven't yeah, got course,
9: the. Yes. It's, it's, it's hard, it's hard water for you for sure, but yeah,
1: and I, that's not an effort to complain. Is there, like if I trip myself up because it's it's live and it's coming at me a million miles an hour, yeah, I'm but, not yeah, complaining. So if and when I trip myself up, go too far on one side or the other of anything, not only talk about sexuality, orientation, or ideology, but it just happens in so many other issues where people have a position, they're very uh, staunch in it, and so. We'll just try to do the best we can to navigate the waters, navigate the conversations. I appreciate you making time for the program this morning. And for me, this is not about being an ally or an advocate or an opposition or a critic. It's got to be a combination of all of the above if I'm going to do it's this. Especially in your position, for sure. Yeah, right? I mean, it's just nature of the beast. Uh, I appreciate yeah. you making time, Kyle. Uh, Kyle, so anything else thing, before we I go? One thing, yeah, just sure. one thing. I would say if you're, if you, you know, if you're, not, if you're not educated on, on these communities and these issues, just educate yourself.
9: You know, it takes you know no time at all. I mean, if you, if you have a negative opinion on the LGBTQ community or trans people, just do a bit of research. I mean, these people are living among us. They're nice people. They're not the people that are causing all these issues that you hear, or I don't even know where you hear of them, but, you know, just educate yourself. That's my that's my point. Educate yourself on the topic.
1: It's a good starting point for just about anything we talk about. Uh, good to have I you on. Carl. Yeah. Appreciate yeah. your first time call. Have a good one. You too. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's take a break for the news. And of course, you know, <laughs> I really thought there would be lots of conversation about energy today whether it be wind to hydrogen or oil, and Bay to North specifically. But, of course, that's the beauty of this, is the topics that we discuss on the program are a result of your call. Let's take a break for the news, guys. When we come back, we're going to talk education. Terrific. Don't go away.
0: Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go. Line number three, say good morning to the president of the NLTA. That's the Newfoundland Labrador Teachers Association. That's Trent Langdon. Trent, you're on the air.
10: Hey, good morning, Patty. Uh, I wanted to call in this morning uh, just to uh, uh, bring some attention to some recent meetings we had this week in St. John's. We, we had the pleasure of hosting all the presidents of all the teacher associations from every single province and territory, so it was, it was quite a great week.
1: Are they sharing similar concerns? I mean, we talk about gaps in education, changes in curriculum, staffing shortages, and all the rest. Is it the same across the country? Because we know it to be true in health but we talk about health care much more than we talk about K-12. to
10: 100%. You nailed it, right? And so even though you know sometimes we say, can we really compare ourselves to say downtown Toronto or or even Northwest Territories? It's uh, it's very unique uh, situation to sit around the table, but uh, and to hear the consistencies that are across the province and across the country, the um, the recruitment retention piece is is quite significant. But the underlying tone with all of it, uh, Patty, to be honest, was the fear amongst the group was that public education is almost becoming normalized now that shortages are present and there's no real plan for it. It's becoming normalized. Okay, you're going to get some aggression in schools to kind of deal with it. So is that normalization of a system that's weakened is the worry of most people uh, and certainly the people around that table. And, and parents need to be aware of this because, if anything, we need to be putting more effort into expanding and strengthening our, our workforce within, uh, making sure we do everything within our uh, uh, realm to uh, reduce uh, uh, opportunities for for violent uh, events in our schools, preventing where possible, and, and increasing supports for for uh, 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 children with special needs. You know that watering down in all those different different areas is is the ultimate concern here because it it impacts retention, recruit recruitment, safety, the whole the whole gamut.
1: Yeah, you know I know this is a pretty broad question. I'm going to ask it anyway. Yeah, it's not that long ago that when you graduated high school you already had it in your mind or it was such a respected position in the community that so many people said i want to be a teacher whether they were inspired by one teacher or another or saw it as a nice secure job opportunity it was a real go-to choice i mean there was times in the past where we had i don't know if right to say too many teachers but we certainly didn't have staffing shortages has there been a shift in mindset has been the way that society has changed like for instance when i was a kid and the school called home I was in trouble. Now, when the school calls home, <laughs> it's the teacher, or the administrator might be in more trouble than, you know, it's been a pendulum shift. So, is there something that people can point to as to why? We're having trouble uh, securing more and more teachers.
10: Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. By the way, Patty, you got called someone for being in trouble. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, but I'll I'll leave that one. Uh, if, with regards to the whole viral situation, the, the the pressures within the system of being a teacher right now it, they're heavy. So uh, I do believe uh, a lot of our new faces that potentially might be looking at getting trained see uh, the work life balance that's there. They see uh, uh, the mental health needs that are in the system. Uh, they see uh, we need to do uh, more with less. Uh, but also there's lots of other options out there that may not have existed before. When you know, let's lose uh, or use Labrador West for example. Uh, you know, when people can can jump and uh and get a, a solid pay for a short term and then come back to the system. Those types of things, uh the tech industry, oil industry, uh those types of industries are a real draw for a lot of young people. And I don't know if young people are really considering education as the best option. So we're we're working with government, we're working with Memorial University to uh do do more around uh educating high school students that education and teaching is such a rewarding profession and uh there's it has a lot to offer. Uh we we're not going to sugarcoat it though, that it is a heavy job, uh, but that's what makes it rewarding in many ways too. But as as a province we need to do more to make sure that it is uh... it is more uh I guess uh appealing to people for sure.
1: Okay. So when we get down to the end of the school year, we're on the home stretch, right? And we won't not a whole lot left in the school year. What's the approach at the end of the school year insofar as things like a post-mortem, whether it be at the association level, whether it be with bringing in individual teachers for round tables or what have you that might be part of the marking boards? What do we actually do to have a year in review?
10: Right. So, as an association, uh, we have uh, priorities that we work on throughout the year, and our provincial executive and our membership. You know, we, we do what we can to to really have a look back at the year and 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 prep for the new year. But we are we are an open conversation with with the school districts because um, sometimes it's easy to forget the conseil, the French school district, even though there's six schools within. Uh, so both school districts uh, to to review where we were, where we need to go. But the overall push is with government to say, government, where's that framework? Where's the plan for that vision for? fixing this problem. Even if it's ten years from now we finally have a solution. Uh, this is not going to be a short term fix. Uh, so th- there's multiple layers. There's the internal layers that we have here. We work with our members, um, the ongoing work with the school districts to make sure individual things are happening in schools. Uh, if there's problems that do exist, okay let's get them fixed over the summer. Uh, if there's something more that needs to be done, certainly by Christmas of next uh, or at the end of this year at Christmas, we need to see some movement. But broadly working with government, government needs to bring something forward Forward to us. They've give us, given us indication. My last discussion with the minister that um, working on a framework, they've asked for our input on, on a bunch of different things. So that's positive. Uh, but sooner or later, we're going to have to see something actually written in, and put in place as to what the long term vision is going to be.
1: Meaning what exactly? Because in the most recent budget, you and I talked about Budget Day in the Foyer Confederation Building. When we talked about education money, there was infrastructure money for new schools, and that's been controversial as well. But there was like $12 million. And now how that's going to be doled out and in what form or fashion or how it's targeted, I'm not really sure. Then we're talking about potential savings with blending the district into the department itself. So what specifically do do you need to see on paper?
10: What we need to see on paper is that, uh, you know, this is this is not just going to be easily fixed with money. And you, you you might find me find it strange that I actually said that because if there's not enough teachers out there to fill positions, no amount of money is going to draw people in. So there needs to be a plan in this province. We're a very unique setup. We have we have Labrador. We have Nor- uh, Northern Peninsula. We have a lot of rural communities, but we have Metro as well. Uh, we need to train people where they are. So, you know, to, to develop a plan that we're going to reinstitute, the Labrador Institute, where we can train people in Labrador to be long-term investors in their communities and be be teachers on the ground. That's the long-term investment we need. If we forever, day in, day out, are going to be looking to draw people to Newfoundland and Labrador to work, that's going to be in perpetuity. We're forever going to be trying to fill those roles that way, and it's the same issue every year. So there needs to be a longer-term plan of how do I get uh, 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 a full-time teacher, for 30 years uh, in English Harbor West. Now that's that's a change too, which I should have referenced earlier. Is uh, the workforce of today is much different than uh, when we would have went to school and started start or started our jobs, Patty. Because uh, it was very common. You start a job, great if I can get a job for 30 years and stay in one in one sector or even in one school. Whereas now a lot of our young people aren't content with that. They they in, you know yourself the research that you've read and so on. That is quite common to have many careers or many uh, different types of. Um, experiences in your in your work life. So it's it's a we've got to adjust with the with the workforce and if there is an opportunity to include some virtual within all of that uh you know we, we've got to embrace that and I, I think that's the only true future for for this province invest in people where they are but also incorporate virtual where possible and uh there's just a combination of all those things.
1: Yeah, they're doing it in BC in education yep. and in healthcare yep. as a matter of fact. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So inside of healthcare, let's start and try to leap into K to 12. For instance, registered nurses, so many of them want to belong on the casual list, have not even taken up the incentives to move to the permanent full-time list because they have more control of their schedule. Mm -hmm. Do we think that, I mean, I don't know if we have a distinct uh, permanent full-time teacher shortage and or a more glaring problem with substitute teachers, but is there a thought that being on the sub-list Because absences are very real. Subs are getting a lot of hours, but they they don't have the responsibilities. They don't have the requirement to deal with the parents all the time. They don't have the marking responsibilities. So do we think that teachers are remaining on the sub list because of the alleviated pressures?
10: Yeah, there's always been certain individuals uh, in our system that, that they want to be full-time substitutes uh, because they like that change every day. They do, that that inconsistency to them of day in, day out, is they value that. Uh, the preparation that may need to take place at night and so on is not there. So there are a certain uh, uh, number of our members that would, would value that. Uh, however, there's a large number as well who want to be in full-time uh, positions uh, where they can put down their roots and be very comfortable. And many of these individuals want to put roots down in their home communities uh, and and or rural community uh, but again uh, it's much easier for me uh, to train uh, I'll use Labrador again uh, teachers in Labrador who currently live there and want to want to stay in their community rather than try and coax or encourage people to go to Labrador because they may enjoy outdoor life uh, I really do believe who's, who's better than the, the teacher our children than the people from our own communities so I really do think this is an opportunity for this province we've always been touting ourselves is very traditional and uh, looking out to each other what better way to do that than to train people where they are on the ground
1: do we know the status of uh, blending the district into the department
10: yeah so just recently it was actually yesterday I think uh, there was uh, a little bit more direction coming out to uh, from the uh, from government to to the membership uh, to our membership just basically saying that the process is in order not a whole lot of nuts and bolts or, or uh, um much I can really share with you, other than the fact to say that they're they're keeping things moving here. Uh, this is the first real communication we've we've seen in, uh, recently, uh, so this this is positive. And uh, I'll just pass along congratulations to the uh, to the new deputy minister uh, Tracy King, and also to uh, Greg O'Leary for his new uh, assignment. Uh, but um, you know we're we're willing to work with with uh, uh, Ms. King and do what we can to to make this uh, as effective as possible. Because in the end, we want our schools to be strong. If our schools are strong and our students are supported, our, our members are supported. And that's, that's where it stands for us.
1: Appreciate the time this morning, Trent. Uh, Petty,
10: can I make one more comment? Sure I just wanted can. to bring up Frank Roberts, Jr. High for a second. Okay. Uh, we've intentionally not been in the media on this one, uh, but I, I do think it's time. Uh, there, There is a, a great divide in, in what the school district is saying and what our members are feeling on the ground there. Um, in many ways, our members are feeling as if issues are being minimized there. Uh, So our job right now is, okay, I got no reason to think the district is lying. But at the same time, we want to make sure that the the pressing issues are being addressed. Um, uh, We're certainly not saying nothing's been done at this point. uh, But there is cause for concern in that building. It's, It's one of our older buildings in the province. There's lots of buildings in this province that have issues. But if there's any threat of rats being in that building, that needs to be rectified ASAP. If there's a mouse or two, Unfortunately, that's the reality we're living in. Uh, but uh, we're going to support our members accordingly. And uh, as long as the uh, appropriate processes are in place and the information is accurate and up-to-date, uh, we'll be okay with that. But we, we, right now, there's there's a real divide between what our teachers are seeing and what uh, ultimately is being said uh, within assessment reports.
1: Appreciate this, Trent. Thanks Chris. Patty. Always a pleasure. My pleasure. Take, okay, care. take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. It's uh, Trent Langdon He's the president of the NLTA. Let's take a break. Well, I know it kind of caught me off guard when these Energy NL conferences usually we get a little bit of good news. And after all the buzz on the opening day, it came with all the breath being hauled out of the room or the air being uh, pulled or sucked out of the room when we found out that Equinor is going to delay, delay, beta north for up to three years. 42 years in the business. Oil and gas consultant Rob Strong after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to oil and gas consultant, our friend Rob Strong. Rob, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How about you?
11: Oh, I'm surviving. You know, it's an inter- interesting time, interesting place to be this morning. I'm sitting here in the convention center downtown and just listening to the Ecuador presentation. But uh, I echo your remarks earlier about uh, the news that came yesterday just before lunch. Just up to then, it's been a great, uh, great convention, a great, uh, great conference. Some really inter- interesting information particularly as it relates to wind and hydrogen and ammonia and that sort of stuff. And then uh, as we are about to sit down for lunch yesterday, uh, Charlene Johnson of Energy NL uh, read a copy of a press release from Equinor. It's sort of, as you said, kicked the, kicked the breath right out of us.
1: You know, I know it's Charlene Johnson's job and the Premier's job to try not to put pig, uh, lipstick on a pig, but to try to temper emotion reaction to this. They say it's disappointing, bump in the road. For me, it's a much more significant blow to the industry. What do you think?
11: Well, yesterday I would have said it, uh, Yesterday I was saying exactly the same thing. But this morning I listened to, uh, to Tora Loseth, who's the country manager for Equinor, and I Lucky enough, I had a chance to spend a couple hours with him well, during the OTC show in Houston a couple weeks ago, and you know, he's a pretty down-to-earth, pretty sincere guy, and uh, his message was basically, you know, we've got some issues, no question. I was hoping he might define some of the issues. You know, is it cost of labor? Is it reservoir issues? Is it the, you know, you know, all the issues that you're aware of, you know, the outside the 200-mile limit? He didn't define the issues, but he did he did make a strong commitment to stay at it. Uh they're gonna keep their office open here. He says he's got B P as their thirty five percent partner on board. So I'm a little more a little more optimistic. I'm not fully optimistic and I I concur with you when you talk about sugarcoating. I mean that's all the politicians to do is to to make everything look as positive as they can. So it's uh it's a real dilemma. We, we, uh, I'll it's, it's tell you where it's hard, Patty. It's, it's hard in the small businesses that have been spending money getting ready for beta-nord. You know, the big guys, the big fabrication shops, the cows, the penny cons, the burns is whatever, they're big enough to to. to to stand by for a couple of years and see what happens. But it's the small guys that I worry about, the guys that are don't have large cash reserves in the bank or have just spent lots of cash getting ready for this thing. The other guys, what do they do for the next two or three years? That's my question.
1: And it's a good one. So uh, oh, it's nice to hear that he's staying positive, which might be taking a very similar tact that the Premier and Charlene Johnson are taking at the same time. But any further understanding about how and why now because I mean, they talk about market volatility. As an executive in the oil business, is there anything more volatile than the price of a barrel of oil and how easily it be, can be manipulated? So that one kind of jumped off the page. As I don't know if "silly" is the right word, but certainly didn't make a lot of sense.
11: Well, I, I, I'd like to like, I'd like to see a further definition of that. I mean, market volatility is that is, the, is that does that talk about the the price of oil, or does it cost about the price of steel, or does it cost about the labor? Uh, so there are a whole lack of variables that 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 go into market bio, you know market fluctuations and so on, and we we don't know that. And that's a sad thing because are there things that we can improve on? And the other dilemma, of course, is that is that we in Newfoundland and our government is faced with it, and therefore you and I are faced with it. Is how much should we demand be done here in Newfoundland? Uh, we know we know subsea is, is captive. And there's a fair bit of work for subsea, and it's a long process because the field is, the field is, you know, a 10, 15-year development scenario. But how much do we demand or how much should we demand vis-a-vis topside fabrication? I'm I'm a, I'm a firm believer that, that we should be doing a lot more than what we I think we're going to be doing. We've had the experience with the White Rose Platform at Marystown and Terranova and so on. But but again, we John Q. public have no idea what the what's on the table. So is is something on the table a, a showstopper? I just don't know, and I wish I did know, because then we might be able to modify our position, or maybe we're leaving. Maybe we should be asking for more. I just don't know, and that's that's the sad thing is we we're never
1: told. It's hard to know what an oil company, how they might react, what they might be willing to say. But if you think back to Hebron, ExxonMobil made no bones about it. Right? They were quite happy to say, here's a problem, and you guys are going to have to figure it out, or we're walking away. And then we had all these visits to baseball games in Houston and all this kind of stuff, and then they paid us $100-plus plus million to be able to do the work outside the benefits agreement somewhere else. <laughs> to me, maybe the Norwegians just handle themselves differently, not quite as brash possibly as ExxonMobil will be. But there seems to be more to it than this. And I hate going down rabbit holes with no real firm understanding of uh, exactly what's going on, but they won't tell us, so we're going to have to opine. If, as you point out, they've walked away from three oil and gas plays in two months, albeit with $12 billion plus in earnings in the first quarter, $3.51 billion after taxes, there feels like there might be something more to it with Oil's thoughts on the future. And where their company lies and their hopes for profitability it might not even be in the sector as much as it has been in the past
11: that's good a good point the 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 cancellation projects there was a a major wind project actually an offshore wind project got cancelled and there was a development called rosebank in the uk that's cancelled and there's a third one that got cancelled recently but you're to have to appreciate now that Norway and therefore Equinor uh, is is concentrating on natural gas as as quick as they can get it out of the ground, they put it in the pipeline to offset the the Russia Ukraine situation. But uh, how long that's gonna last, one one doesn't know. Uh, Equinor is, to my mind, a world class company. They they they. I, I, you know, I've been traveling back and forth to Norway for the last 30 years, sort of thing. So I've had a chance to observe. Them first. So I, I think I think they're probably right. They're they're a little more conservative in in what they're prepared to say uh, versus the Exxon's or the BP's or the Shell's or whatever. But I still I I return to my 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 comment a minute ago. What is it when you talk about market vol you know the the fluctuation in the market is – is it is it is it is it royalty regimes? Is it you know, for instance, drilling costs. Drilling costs have gone up. The average semi-submersible these days, which you will, you'll need at Beta North, has probably gone up $100,000 a day in the last three years. So is that the stop showstopp- What what are the showstoppers right now? That's what I'd like to know.
1: There was logistics that hadn't even been quite settled. I mean, it's one thing to get to the other operating platforms with the Cougars and their Sikorskis, but I don't even know if they figured that much out, whether they're going to be crews on supply ships or they're able to find some sort of helicopter that can actually travel that distance uh, safely. So I think there's a a whole lot of starting point stuff that we arrive at this decision gate and they think, whether it be market volatility, supply chain, escalating costs, which are not coming back to earth, so I don't know how that factors in, or even just very fundamental things that maybe, with the inability to settle those, the second decision gate, they couldn't even satisfy their own in-house parameters.
11: And let's not let's not forget the the law of the sea implications 100%. of developments out beyond the two hundred mile and and that's never been tested before. So that that could add up to seven percent of the cost there could be a seven percent royalty payable to the United Nations as a result. So there there are a lot of unknowns. But you're you're you know, as far as logistics go, Patty, you're entirely correct. My understanding is that a helicopter goes to the Flemish pass, takes seven passengers. Yeah. Because you need that extra capacity for fuel, a helicopter goes to the Hibernia Hebron the John Derek base takes sixteen passengers so uh, then you you add that you that you add that up over the life of the field that's a significant cost impediment but again we we don't we just don't know that's a sad thing but but just to recap patty i i i I'm concerned i'm not I'm not one that sugarcoats anything but I feel a little more optimistic having heard the Equinor presentation this morning. I'm not convinced. I'm not gonna t I am not going to can not take it to the bank. My bank manager won't accept it for security. But I psychologically I feel just a little bit better. I'm not I'm not all the way there yet by any means.
1: Well, my bank manager doesn't accept positivity as collateral either.
11: <laughs> Good to
1: have you on, Rob. Thanks for this.
11: You're very welcome.
10: Take, take care.
1: care. All right, bye bye. Rob Strong. 42 years in the game. Uh, time for the news. Dave, how are we doing on the telephone? When we come back, time for you. Don't go away.
0: Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. 530 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Tenley, you're on the air.
0: Hey, daddy how's it going?
1: Doing okay. How about you?
12: Oh, not too bad. I just want to touch base, I guess, real quickly. I know you're probably busy there, but the LGBTQ caller there, I believe his first one was his name was Paul, I believe.
1: I think that's right.
12: Uh yeah, I just, uh, it just caused me so much, um, tightness so much in my chest, it feels, you know, and I, I, I'm not even part of that community. Like, it's similar to Kyle, I, I consider myself an ally, but it just, uh, I can only imagine if you are a part of that community and you hear a call like that and you just shake your head and realize how it almost feels like there hasn't been any progress made. And I know there has been, but that's just the way it feels when you get callers like that sometimes, you know?
1: I get it. And this is not about Paul or any other, uh, particular caller, but sitting in this chair, I have to try to figure out very quickly if uh, a perspective is coming from a place of misinformed or uneducated or hate and take it from there. And so there's a vast difference between those three positions. Uh, which requires a different type of conversation, I think. But I get the, you know, how it must resonate in the ears of a member of the LGBTQ community. And I'm sure it's really quite difficult to listen to. And it would have been the exact, se- the exact opposite when we talked to Eddie Sincourt earlier in the show who's the chair of Pride. So, I mean, that's how I try to proceed with these things. If it's all about jumping down someone's throat for an opinion that is not based in hate, but it's based on something else, then the conversations never happen and similar to conversations regarding other controversial issues. Immigration, say, for instance. You know if it's coming from a place of uh, racism versus legitimate questions about housing and health care and vetting and security. So that's how, <laughs> I, I don't know how people hear them, but I try to be aware of how it must be heard or absorbed or resonating with one person or another.
12: Yeah, definitely. I, I missed the first part of the show, so I I have to ch- catch up on that call later tonight. But um, I guess I just want to put in my, my my own sentiments towards Pride Month there. And I, as an ally, I just want to let people know that, uh, you know, there are people out here that do care about you. And uh, and on that note, i i seen out in B.C. there actually a news article this morning the, regarding a senior's home. And uh, they're actually giving their residents, senior residents now, you know, in their 70s and plus, the chance to embrace what they might not have been able to before so they're offering these these opportunities to the seniors to to show that they're a part of the community when they might not have been able to show that before and I think that's that's something that should uh, probably catch catch wind across the country too
1: yeah I know there's some move afoot in this province about a similar type of policy and it's all important look because what happens I think sometimes is that If you see a story where someone has done something, and then all of a sudden you think that that's representative of the entire community, regardless of who we're talking about, then what we do is we very quickly begin to demonize people. And when that happens, it's hard to turn that page back. It's hard to stuff that genie back in the bottle. And I really do find this much akin, in my head anyway, to issues such as immigration. So we just have to be a little bit more thoughtful and careful about all of a sudden everyone of any different walk of life they're all the same, which, of course, has never been true. Regardless if you're talking about white, blonde, blue-eyed, east-end townies like me, we're not all the same because there's no such thing. Same thing inside the LGBT community. Same, same thing inside the uh, group of immigrants. Same thing inside the w- our world of teachers or cops or anybody. We just have a nasty habit of all of a sudden everyone's the exact same, and consequently we paint them with the same brush and we demonize them equally when it's certainly never deserved.
12: No, 100%. If you're open to education, I'm all there for But I, I wanted to touch on that seniors' home topic because that's I think one. that's sort of where a lot of the stigmatization still lies is in that, uh, you know, uh, quote-unquote boomer community. So if they see people of their own, you know, years i guess you can say doing this and and coming out then i think it'll help the conversation big time a good uh, point. But just one one last quick plug for myself there patty if you don't mind i uh i got a podcast there uh, talk, touching on these subjects with my own mental health childhood trauma and all that stuff um if, if you don't want to reach out to it, it's cannabis and constellations uh talks about how medical cannabis can be used to treat all these uh Uh, mental illnesses and and also like I said I touched a lot of it on this LGBTQ plus community as the ally that I try to be
1: appreciate your time this morning thanks for the call good luck with the podcast
12: thanks patty you're welcome thanks bye 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 -bye.
1: all right uh, final break of the morning when we come back of course there will be the announcement from Equinor will be heard differently in different segments and different sectors of the industry Darren King he's the executive director of trades and he's next and then time for you don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number three say good morning to the executive director at trades NL. that's Darren King good morning Darren you're on the air hey Patty, good morning how are you doing okay how about you I'm doing well thank you thanks for taking my call I appreciate it happy to do it. so we know that uh, Equinor's prospects at Beta Nord more complicated than any other discovery potential production field ever With that decision made yesterday, there's some people are out there saying that maybe one of the stalling points was the province demanding so much of the work being done here, and consequently that might have soured the conversation, your reaction.
9: Well, I I mean, I have
13: no news that confirms that, to be honest with you. No, no, I'm just getting you to
1: react to that component of the conversation.
13: Sure, yeah. So, you know, everything I've heard has actually been contrary to that. Uh, You know, we've had regular discussions with Equinor and government, and, and to my knowledge, Everyone thought things were proceeding along well um, and well up until yesterday, of course, when the news came out. So, uh, you know, I, I'm and and if by the way, you know, I guess my perspective on that would be that it, that if asking for local benefits is what's stalling the project, well then so be it. I mean, uh, there's nothing unreasonable that the province or anyone else has asked for to date in the negotiations. Uh, that's been any different than in, in past projects, but I, I don't believe that. I I believe that there are other things at play here, uh, in, including maybe you know the, comp- the company's uh, broader view of what they want to do and where they want to go with things. Uh, and having said that, you know, I'm still optimistic, Patty, that this project will proceed. Uh, you know, I've had personal experiences with a couple of these in the past, and there's always been delays and, uh, and tactic cues. And you wonder sometimes why they do things, because not a lot of information is shared. There's not a lot of transparency. Uh, but based on my experiences, I'm still optimistic that we're going to see this move forward over the next year or two.
1: Let's hope so. Uh, so inside this, like I was really anticipating a thumbs up this year at some point coming from Equinor. They've long talked about only the best projects would proceed. This is a significant find, even though it would be Canada's first deep water well. They're talking about break even in the business model at 35 bucks a barrel, which looked like that was going to be easily attained, if not doubled quite simply throughout the course of the next 10 years or whatever the window is people want to choose. So with all of those thoughts, and I think many of your members probably felt or thought the same way, Talk about the prep that these people would have put in as companies or otherwise, and maybe some investments they've made to be ready for this type of hopeful, positive announcement, which unfortunately did not happen.
13: Yeah. So, for, so the first part of your comment, I agree with you, and I think I think most people probably would agree. Uh, you know, the environment was set up in a way that I think everybody was kind of feeling that over, you know, the last month or so, or heading into the next couple of months, we were going to see something positive come out of this and a positive announcement and. Uh, you know, things will be off to the races, so to speak. So I think it's fair to say, yeah, a lot of people are sort of shocked and taken aback by the announcement. Um, but to your second point, Patty, you know, these, these are big projects and there's a lot of vested time and money, not only by Equinor. I mean, they they themselves, you know, their entire St. John's office likely is dedicated or the best part of it to this project alone. And they've, I don't know what they have, maybe 25 or 30 people working there. And, you know, that's one issue. I mean, the other issue locally, unfortunately, is that we have a lot of local companies who invested a lot of time and energy and business development activity uh, to prepare uh, proposals and bids to try and take advantage of some of the work that uh, they felt was coming to the province. So, you know, there's no question, there's probably lots of organizations and companies uh, in a different spot than Trades and L will be today. I mean, we've invested money in this, but, uh, you know, not to the degree that some of these other companies would. So, it, it's yeah, it, it's tough
1: for sure. And, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of those companies and organizations are scratching their
13: head for sure with this.
1: No doubt they are. So let's turn to next opportunities. And this might be an example of cart in front of the horse, but it's happened. So World Energy GH2 has actually uh, secured the deal to purchase the port of Stephenville, which very much screams that they think they're going to get a green light. So while there might be uh, bad news on one front, there might be good news on the other, albeit not replicating the same number of jobs and the long-term nature of those jobs, but anywhere to find a silver lining these days is pretty important.
13: Yeah, you know, I agree with you. And, and, I mean, in the construction industry today, we're, you know, we're busy. Uh, you know, I speak for trades only, but we're busy. I mean, we've got, you know, in the hundreds of people working then to come by chance refinery with Brea Fuels. We've got, uh, I don't know, maybe 600 people doing the Boise Bay mine expansion. We've got, uh, in the hundreds again, up with G.J. Cal doing uh, maintenance work in IOC. And that that's not counting employees that we have on the Marathon Gold Project and the Terra Nova and others. So, you know, there's a lot of activity in, in the province and across the country uh, that's going to keep trades workers busy for the next foreseeable future, for sure. And the wind and hydrogen is just, uh, you know, a tip of the iceberg in a different direction. I mean, on the Bay of and stuff, my, my advice to government would be to uh, stay engaged and be patient. Uh, there's no rush here. I mean, there's the, the the whole natural resources energy industry is booming right now and it's going to be for the foreseeable future. So I don't think the province is in a position where they need to panic on this or or, uh, or anything like that. You know, the Bainanor project I believe is a good project, and I think Equinor has said it repeatedly. They see it as a, a bit of a, a game changer in the oil industry if they can make this project happen. So I, I think it'll happen. It's just gonna be a matter of time, but in the meantime, there's still lots of great opportunities in the province on the construction side.
1: On that point, not panic is never a good idea, but versus 25, 30 years ago, there will be fewer oil fields produced. I mean, I just think that stands to reason. Companies have pulled back on their exploration dollars, and fewer exploration dollars spent, probably less uh, opportunity for production. So, let's just say, just use round numbers for the sake of it. If 20 years ago, there was going to be companies willing to bring 20 new oil fields into production uh, fast forward to today that 20 might be five so there is an essence of time is important it might not equate to panic but it does equate to a sense of urgency that might not have been part of the conversation 20 years ago
13: yeah I, you know i don't disagree with that either um but i mean that same logic applies to the company as it does to the uh, to the to the province i mean the company the, the opportunities for companies in the oil business to develop future oil fields are going to diminish as well so the field is still relatively level there um okay but you know uh, I, yeah i just you know my advice is i don't think that we should panic uh, i mean there's lots happening here and you know you know stakeholders all have people to answer to so you know government's got to answer to the voters at some point in time and and they're obviously going to want to keep that in mind uh, equinor answers to their board of directors just the same as i do with trades and l so Uh, you know everybody's got a different perspective on this for sure you know my advice based on my experiences would be not to panic i think uh, i don't think government should do a deal unless it's a good deal for the province Um, and i don't think that anyone should feel like they're being blocked into a corner by equinor or anybody else because of of the you know the perceived decline of the oil industry if this project cannot be a good project for the province and it shouldn't proceed and i don't believe that by the way for a minute i think it is a good project for the province and for the company that's why I'm, i am really optimistic that this will get back on
1: track i appreciate the time this morning darren thanks for this thanks patty all the best i appreciate the opportunity as always anytime take care bye 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 it's darren king a ed at trades and l final word goes to line five former mayor and former member of the house of assembly sam Slade, joins us on the line good morning sam you're on the air
14: good morning patty how are you this morning
1: top shelf today how about you
14: uh, I'm not too bad, Patty. Uh, I just uh, called you this morning there. I heard that uh, lady on there from uh, Bay de Verde. And uh, it's quite concerning, uh, you know, like, I mean, uh, those fellas after been out for crab now uh, for several trips. And, uh, you know, those small boat fishermen down around there uh, who sells to uh, Quincy, uh, of course, uh, uh, they won't give them bait and they won't give them... Uh, you know, ice or anything to go out and fish it. Now, there a few weeks ago, Paddy, you know, like uh, the premier was in a big old rush. We say to get this thing done, you know, and uh, you know, like uh, fishermen out there now being, uh, well, I, I actually they're being punished because they stood their ground. They're being punished. So, you know, Paddy is, you know, is one, you know, Royal Greenland is one thing, but uh, you know, it's the way that the uh, fish harvesters are being treated right now. And uh, I don't think for one second that is right. Uh, Not all processors are doing it. Uh, They're sending their small boats, they're sending their big boats, and one thing or another. But for whatever reason, Royal Greenland uh, is not allowing any of their small boats uh, to go. I heard from a fellow over in 3PS uh, the night before last. uh, He's in the same boat. They won't give him bait and that. They won't allow him to go fishing and that. So, I mean, you know, if the Premier is proud of of the job that he's done, you know, I, I'd certainly think it's time for government to stand up to the base here and say, you cried to, to get the fishermen back on the water, and now it's time we say for you to turn around and start buying their crab.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I wonder, Sam, how it was calculated by the union about what might happen four weeks, five weeks, six weeks down the line when the harvesters go at it. Whether it be for 220 twenty pound or 250 fifty pound? because at some point, when we were told right off the bat, there's a glut of inventory in the market, Trip limits have always been a problem. Six weeks not fishing was absolutely going to lead down the path of more intense regulations about trip limits. I wonder how they factor that in because now it's coming home to roost.
14: The only thing about it, look, I mean, uh, I don't think it had a whole lot to do with it uh, uh, because last year, we were on trip limits last year. Oh, yeah. Uh, So, I mean, and and last year, the fishery got off to a, a quick start. So right now... Uh, you know, is, is no argument being made there on that patty? Because you know you have got fish harvesters now. Uh, that's after making four, five, uh, six trips, and well, that small boat still sits there, and and you know it's, it's going to make it more difficult uh, for for him to catch his crab now. So I mean, you know, when the premium and them were talking about it, all they kept on saying was, you know, like it's important guys to get this settled, get it done, get on the water and get the crab. Well. You know, if you can buy it from that fella who got a lot of crab, and he's going to bring in more crab, uh, you know, one could only think that some feller out there with nine or ten thousand pound of crab could catch. In, in in this case here, that's what it is. Uh, you know, you would allow him to start picking at his bit of crab.
1: Absolutely. Uh, my point, I guess, was trip limits have always been a problem. Now this year they're going to be an even bigger problem because all of a sudden the season is much shorter than it was last year.
14: Yeah, no, there's no, uh, Patty look, there's no doubt about that, and I don't, I, I, you know, like, uh, I, I just got a, a funny feeling, you know, in the pit of my stomach, we say, that, uh, that, uh, you know, like, it could get cut off any time at all. And so, uh, you know, I'm very concerned, I, I tell you, Paddy, look, like, it don't affect me, but when I heard that lady on there this morning, I, you know, like, I mean, it, it's enough to, you know, break your heart, we say, to see what's going on
1: yeah it's you know a, a tough season now it might be a devastating season especially when I've got a small quota that I'm not allowed to go I could probably get it all in one or two steams now I'm gonna to have to do it three or four times the bit of profit I had coming in at 220 is vastly reduced and that's obviously going to be a long-term problem uh, Sam I appreciate your time you had the last word this morning
14: thank you uh, Patty very much for your time
1: my pleasure all the best all right bye-bye there we go interesting show today yes sir And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.